With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woohoo! Often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games, so join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. They didn't torture them, they kill them. Really? Yeah. Just straight kill them. Even if you make a joke. Wow. If you put make a joke and you, you mention Saddam's name, that's done. Yeah. They tell us, don't go close to him, don't shake your hands, nothing. I want to fly smooth, I don't want to do anything wrong. Walk in, good morning, good morning, sir, how are you? Good, good, done. His eyes, his eyes like sparkling. Before he walked out, he came to the cockpit and he put his hand on my shoulders. He said, guys, did you see something? Without anything like, you know, or struggling at him, no, sir. That's good. He ordered his uh, security, get him here, cut his, his tongue. Cut it off. Yeah, so he took it with the pliers. Take it out, they cut 20 minutes, half hour, not even that time. It was by myself. Two cars, uh, Ministry of Interior. I hear a ton of bullets to my house, just across the street. Welcome to Mic Drop. The podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent 32 years in the Iraqi Air Force. He was the original Iraqi maverick. He's the author of Flying the Tyrant, and he's flown more hours than I've been alive. And I will say, if there's anyone who warrants a put, putting a My Boss is an Asshole bumper sticker <laughs> on his car, it's this guy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Mohammed Suleiman and the co-author, Lauren Ungeldi. Thank you for coming, both of you guys. Um, I'm, I've been excited uh, for a long time, so actually since I first heard about uh, you guys working on this book together, um, to be able to, to sit here with, with the three of us and, and talk about this book, because uh, it's one of the most fascinating stories uh, you know, that I've come across in, in a long time, and, and certainly since I've been doing this show I can't thank you guys enough, one, for doing the project, uh, and two, for carving out the time to come on here and, and allowing me to, to be the first to interview you guys. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, you got it. Thank you to you to have us here. Thank you. Um, the, the first question, I like to kind of get a, into a little bit of a lightning round. What's the strangest thing that you find that's normal here in America? Well, actually, like nothing here is strange. Nothing strange? <laughs> nothing <laughs> so nothing? strange. Like a safe uh, country. I love all the people here. Yeah. Are you just is saying it mo- More freedom here. It's more freedom. So nothing so that's strange. that's strange, right? Nothing. Maybe the freedom is strange? No. No. <laughs> Absolutely no. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes if it's like go over, that's mean against the yeah. person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's the last full book that you've read? 
Actually, it's my your book. My <laughs> book All right, other yeah. than your book, what's the what's somebody else's book? What's the last book that you read? Well, actually, uh, I don't have time for that. Actually, for reading books, but you know, because I have, I follow so- social media a lot. Yeah. So most of them, like uh, I read like uh, reports for, especially about uh, politics yeah. around the world, like what happened, what's going on. Yeah. Especially through Ukraine. Sure. Situation. Uh, do you have a favorite childhood memory? Child, a lot I have. Like. What What comes to mind first? Back in the days, like being a kid. Yeah, when I was like, uh, my dad take me to the airplane, like I let me sit in the cockpit. Oh yeah, that's that's yeah. the most that stands moment. Out. I love it. Yeah, yeah, and it smelled even like the cockpit smelled like different because paint uh, some of like oil, some stuff like that, or seeds like from leather. So it smelled like something different. So I love that smell. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious. I mean, the, from, from reading, uh, you know, through the first couple chapters of the book, the uh, kind of the imprint that your father had on, on, you know, what you did, what your brothers did being a pilot, was there ever any question as to whether or not that was the case or like from your earliest memories of, of thinking about what you were going to do uh, once you grew up, was it always being a pilot? Well, since I grew up, like, it's my dream to be a pilot. Yeah. As my father. Then my oldest brother joined the Air Force. So it gave me more, like, uh, force to yeah. follow. But, like, you never thought, like, you wanted to be a pro soccer player or a politician, like, nothing? Never, never. never. As soon as I finished high school, straight ahead. Yeah. to the hospital for checking like you know that's for when you apply for the iraqi i yeah. mean for the to be a pilot yeah like special like checkup they yeah. do a lot of yeah. tests like health tests yeah uh, i'm gonna take a, a quick break i, I do want to let you guys know um, the way that you can support the show is to support our sponsors uh, i know some people don't like to hear ads but uh, that's how i do what i do for a living so uh, any support you can show for our gracious sponsors is much appreciated. And again, it does uh, does support the show. So thank you. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. Uh, what is your daily morning routine here in the United States on an average day when you're at home? Well, actually, I, I'm a military man, so I wake up every day like maybe 5, 5.30. I'm up completely when I wake up, like full of energy. So drink my coffee, then work out. What, uh, what does the workout look like? Like uh, I have like treadmill, uh, some weight. Then after, at the same time, I'm watching the news. Yeah. Like treadmill, then news. What news do you watch? Uh, CBS News. I CBS like it. News? Yeah. yeah. Like it. It's um, my favorite channel. <laughs> yeah. What is, what is it about CBS that makes it your favorite? I, I, I would have thought uh, it would be like, you know, an international news source. I also. Yeah. Also CNN. Yeah. But you consider CBS, that an international yeah. news source? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But CBS I was thinking like, like BBC, NPR, <laughs> Al Jazeera, something like that. But Never. Never? No. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, I, I would, I'd like for Lauren to jump in here. How how did this project, before we kind of get into some of you growing up and stuff, how are we sitting here, essentially? How how did all this happen? 
So that's kind of an interesting story. We get asked this a lot. You know, people look at me, you know, I am an author, but how did I come to know, you know, Saddam Hussein's pilot? And actually, it's an interesting story, and you're involved in the story, Mike. That sounds dangerous. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. So this is a connection between Hamidi Jassim, who wrote The Terrorist Whisperer. He was also a guest on your show. And Jeff Morris, who wrote Legion Rising, along with me. Uh, I was the co-author on that, my very first book. And those two guys, as it turns out, and there was a connection made through a military reporter when they discovered this, these two guys were in Haifa Street together. Jeff was involved in actually saving Hamidi Jassim's life. I think he was just a young teenager at the time, local Iraqi. And so they didn't, you know, you have your headgear on, you're in the middle of the things, you don't exchange phone numbers, you're not seeing each other's faces clearly. And so it wasn't until a couple of years later in the States that these guys realized, like, holy shit, we were, we were there together. This guy saved my life. And so that friendship, I got to know Hamity through there. And then one day I just get an Instagram message that says, Lauren, I have your next book project. And I was like, all right, well, that's bold. Okay, who is it? And he says, how about, you know, the former pilot of Saddam Hussein? And I thought, all right, well, that's a story, you know. And what fascinates me about it is we've heard a lot of the American perspective, right, of that period of time. Mm -hmm. But now we're getting to get a little peek behind the curtain. We're getting to flip the tables a little bit, and we are seeing it from a different perspective. And so I set up a phone call with this handsome gentleman right here. And we spoke on the phone, and immediately our connection was great. He's so positive. He has this surrender to life that just makes him happy, uh, kind, easygoing. So we had a hell of a time. It was great. And he told me stories, always threw in a few jokes in there. So, yeah, yeah it was good, a good, good time. Was there a part of you that thought, like, wait a minute, this is either too easy, too good to be true, or it's a trap, like... I mean, sure. for, for me now, granted, my perspective is maybe a little a little different in terms of being yeah. probably more paranoid than most people yeah. that that way. But yeah. that would be my first thing and be like, wait a minute, like, is this legit? Sure, sure. Yeah, <laughs> of course. There's that time in which you're thinking, like, is this person, as they say, what I have to vet my own vetting process that I go through. And then a little bit of, you know, I mean, part of this story is him escaping, you know, assassination attempt. And just considering, you know, is everything safe? But there's been enough time go by that safety is not an issue. And then immediately when I begin to talk with him and he's sending me, you know, dozens of photos, I'm seeing all of the, the evidence, the flight logs, the everything. I mean, this, he's the guy, yeah. you know, he's, he's really the guy. Yeah. And then it just kicked off a wonderful process of us working together. And so, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There, there's that thought, but after the due diligence, it, it became really abundantly clear. Yeah, and and so from your perspective, Muhammad, what uh, did you kind of decide that you wanted to write a book? Was it presented to you as an option? How how from your perspective did everything kind of transpire? Yeah, actually, I have idea like about to write my memories, like while I'm serving in the Air Force and the VIP squadron. From time to time, like. I try, but I don't have a time. Um, Sometimes I tell my f- my kids about the stories. At least they're gonna remember it, like in the future. Yeah. Well, if you don't have time to read a book, you probably don't have time to write a book, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So until uh, Lauren called me about uh, to write a book, so I sw- I was like struggling at that time. I may, uh, I called my friend. So one of them, she told me, like, why, go ahead, please. 
this is your time. This is your opportunity. So you have to do something. I thought, okay. Then. Yeah. Because I'm scared, like, you know, because I have, still I have my father over there and my brother and my sisters back home there. Something happened to them. Sure. Maybe because of book. So that's, I'm thinking about it. Yeah. But, you know, I have to do something. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, I, don't, I don't, I don't blame you. That, that would be a, a difficult so, decision, but yeah. Uh, all right, so growing up there, um, where, where did you actually grow up? What town? Yeah, actually, I was born in, uh, in Mosul first, like just for like maybe six months. Then my father moved to Habania. Yeah. He was like in Habania Air Base, but he moved for certain things. I don't know why I was like a kid. I don't, know, I don't remember that. So I grew up in Habania Air Base. They call it Tammuz Air Base. From uh, 1963 till uh, 1976, you moved to Baghdad, but all the time inside the air base mm-hmm. there. And do you have a perspective for what it was like growing up as a child on a on a military base versus everybody else, the kids that weren't on military bases? Like, were you friends with any of those kids, and, and did you kind of intermingle with the civilian populace that way? Yeah, actually, we, I live like uh, with my father, like uh, on a like s- special site for, uh, just for the pilots or, or, or officers. Mm-hmm. So I um, have friends also the same my age. Uh, two of them, they get a pilot. Yeah, so yeah. also uh, like the father's pilot, so kids follow the fathers, that's yeah. why. Is, yeah. Was that um, for... for from a, a society or a culture standpoint in Iraq, was that pretty typical that most kids wanted to do what their fathers did? That's, that's yeah. yeah. So like no matter doctor, what? go as a doctor. Yeah. Like an engineer, get an engineer pilot. The most pilot, but pilot, you know, it's very hard to get it because you follow like certain rules like for medical test, yeah. check out that's exam, that's different. Yeah. If you unfit for this to be a pilot, so... You don't have a choice. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, what about for more middle class or even blue collar jobs? Like if kids' dads were mechanics or, uh, you know, infrastructure workers, electricians, things like that, would would that same thing apply where kids, pretty much all kids, just wanted to do what their dads did? Yeah, the most, like, you know, when they opened their eyes, like they, they saw, like, his, his father or her father, like, he's doing, like, certain job. So yeah. he tried to be at... Yeah, the same, but most of uh, that the most. But sometimes, yeah, the dad maybe he wants he want they want he want them like to get like uh, be engineers or doctors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But so you've got two brothers, uh, all want to want to be pilots together. Uh, was there competition between between you guys as to who could become a pilot the fastest, who was going to be the best? Were you guys competitive, brother to brother? We actually know, but uh, when you sit together, we talk about... Uh, now you talk uh, shit to each yeah, other. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but my own oldest brother, actually, uh, like he, he gets killed like, you know, by aircraft, like yeah. crash aircraft. That was in 1984, like um, after I graduate six months. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. yeah so um, I don't have the time to talk to him. Like uh, Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess going a few steps back to, to still during childhood, you played some sports growing up. Yeah. Uh, but they were more of just a hobby. That wasn't wasn't what you wanted to do. 
if you could just kind of uh, describe what it was like growing up at, at that time in Iraq, like um, looking back on it, what, what was important, uh, the things that kind of stood out as being memorable. Yeah, I remember like uh, when I grew up in a Habani Air Base, like uh, go for hunting with a BB gun. That's, I love it. Yeah. And uh, swimming all day, all summer, like go to like for the, to the pool from maybe nine o'clock till sunset. Wow. Yeah, so all like tan, like completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, late, later on, like when I, we moved to Baghdad, I started uh, doing sports. Uh, so uh, I used to swimming in Iraqi Air Force, like competitions. And uh, that's, that's during uh, my service. And uh, I started in the college uh, doing a sport as a pole vault, they call it. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Can you imagine this guy pole vaulting? I can't. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's my number. Like, I was like uh, number one in whole Iraqi army and second in whole country. My record was uh, four meters and 35 centimeters. Really? Yeah. Was there any um, desire, hope, or kind of path that, that may have led to trying to go to the Olympics to represent Iraq? No, actually, because like uh, I start like moving to the VIP. Yeah. I don't have a time for that, actually. Yeah. 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 And also like carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> like you know what I can appreciate? There's <coughs> been already several times that you said, yeah, I don't have time for that, so I don't do it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thing. Because, yeah. you know, sometimes like yeah. when uh, like you go for mission outside the country, like uh, with the pre with the ministers or like with delegation, I stay with them sometimes five days especially with Yasser Arafat, I say stay with him 20 days. Yeah. So, but no, I, I yeah. mean, I can, I, I don't say that jokingly. Yeah. I, you know, most, yeah. most people I think say yes to too many things uh, yeah. and end up half-assing all of them. <laughs> uh, so I can appreciate dedication and focus to, to what you're truly interested yeah. in and say, no, I don't have time. I'm going to focus on this. I think it's great. Um, I, I am curious, like from a, from a society standpoint, you've been in America now here for a, for a period of time. You have children here and grandchildren, correct? Yes. Um, looking back at your time growing up in Iraq, I'm really curious, uh, like state TV and what you guys knew about the rest of the world and, and what you were told, what, what type of television or news w was allowed um, for you guys to, to kind of ingest and, and learn. Like what was your perspective growing up of the rest of the world and, and kind of where Iraq sat in it? That was in Iraq, right? In mm -hmm. Growing so, up. So, yeah, Iraq is just, we have like uh, two uh, channels. So we're not allowed to get a like, uh, satellite dish or something like that. No. So uh, just two channels, that's it. And But I have uh, like on the side, nobody knows about it. I have dish like satellite. I used yeah. to like uh, watching all the news, like yeah. what happened yeah. in the war. Yeah. What, yeah. Uh, what, what was your perspective on the rest of the world um, a as a child? Like, did, did you know um, about America and, and, and Russia and China in terms of what roles they played or not or their, their interest in the region and, and things of that nature? Yes, yes, actually, I, all the time, like, I follow the news between, uh, sometimes tension between the United States and Russia, see what's going on. Like, yeah. I try to figure out what's going on. China with other countries, like, why are they fighting? 
because why that's even as a kid yes yeah was was that common for for kids growing up in iraq or were you kind of different that way like did did most kids as they were growing up show an interest in politics and and foreign countries and foreign affairs yeah actually actually iraqi like uh, never get stable since 1958 yeah after they kill uh, the king yeah so it never gets stable. So even my dad, like, you know, all the time watching the news. So I try to see what's going on, like revolution after revolution. Like every four or five years, they have something happen yeah. in the government in Iraq or the president different. Yeah. Revolution, killing, uh, up, uh, unstable situations. So I have to, like, look what happened. Yeah. Follow what, like. Yeah. And it, kind of in that same same vein, um, what what did you think as a child and, and into your teen years before you joined the Air Force, like what were your thoughts on Syria, on Jordan, on Israel and Palestine, Iran? Like did, did you have strong opinions of, of all of the, the kind of contiguous bordering countries and, and what role they played or, or did you not pay much attention or how did that? Yeah, actually in that time uh, they teach us like in school what happened exactly. They tell us all the time what happened to Palestine with Israel, what happened to Syria. Like, uh, they they tell us about the situation. Yeah. Even if we didn't hear it like by the news, so still like we, like we, we learned it in school. Yeah. yeah. Um, was there, whether it's, again, you know, Turkey, Iran, Syria, Jordan, any of those surrounding countries, were any of them other than Iran kind of taught to you guys as being, uh, you know, a, a possible conflict? Or did, did you look at any of, of your neighbors as an Iraqi as potentially threatening other than Iran? Or, or was it pretty um, specific to just the Iran? Um, specific to just the Iran, actually. Uh, yeah. Would you say the relationship between, at least again from your perspective as a child growing up, that, that all of the other countries were, were friendly? Yeah, all of the other countries friendly besides Syria. Like, you know, since I think uh, 1979, I think, or 70, 1977, I think, they get tension between, no, sorry, 1979. Yeah. Yeah, I get the problem with the Syria. Did was there a, a feeling of kind of almost being scared or threatened that something was going to happen? Uh, like, were, were you guys under constant worry yeah, of yeah, yeah, with Syria and Iran? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Um, what about the the Palestine and and uh, and Israel situation? Like, was that something that was a big deal to you guys growing up? Like, was that something that you were upset about? Well, as I about? told you, they teach us in the school, like you know what happened exactly, and sometimes the the, the all the time is not the same time beside the Palestine people. Yeah. They blame everything like on Israeli yeah. side. But I was, was like a little kid, yeah. didn't know what happened. After I grow up, I see like completely different the situation. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean. Well, they, there's, there's they teach us three lie. sides yeah, to every story, right? Yeah, they lie There's a, yeah, the one, one, each person's side and then exactly. what actually happened. Yeah. Right? Um, blame uh, the other side. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that. Yeah, I mean it's the same way here in the United States. Let's be honest, right? It's that it's that way everywhere. Everywhere right? we go. Like yeah. Um, what was your favorite food growing up, uh, and and what were the types of uh, foods that you ate? Actually, my mom food like she has like uh, she doing a lot of things like biryani also, 
and uh, the most most like you call it uh, it's like meatloaf uh, but they call it uh, rog mm. rog mosel that's or kubba one of your favorites yeah that's yeah. my favorite yeah. you still yeah. eat it i still eat it i still like yeah. made it number one i mean i made yeah. it even my kids like uh, a week ago yeah my youngest daughter she told me dad you've been a long time we didn't do it for us like a rog yeah. Is I it, like it at home. Okay, when I come back. Don't is it uh, with beef in it, or is it? A, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for, like from an infrastructure standpoint, growing up, um, I'm curious the difference between, you know, pre-first Gulf War and and you know once, I guess even maybe backing it up to to when the Iran Iraq War happened, like power and water and and basic infrastructure stuff was that pretty dependable, or would you lose power and water and and was it shifty the same way it was when once we came in during yeah like when you were growing up like was oh. it normal to lose power and no actually when i grew up like i was a little kid nothing there everything perfect until uh, we get to war with iran then everything yeah, yeah because they had couple uh like power supplies yeah they're like a station so we get like losing power so that's I start like yeah. What is that? Yeah. yeah, but before nothing. Yeah. So um, when you when the when the Iran War started, you were late teens, early twenties. Yeah. And uh, can you kind of explain what that was like for you? Yeah, that was actually first like uh, airstrike was from uh, Iran was uh, on uh, 1980 on exactly on September 22nd was like hot in Iraq so uh, we I was like uh, sitting like you know we used to like uh, sleep at the top of the roof like but it's surrounding they call it Sata top of the roof so it was like early morning around five o'clock in the morning I saw like uh, three aircraft it was phantom mm. phantom yeah so just pass over the my my dad, the house and the other one goes the other side, so it, one of them get hit with the rocket trailer, so he released the bombs. So it's on like houses. So that's the first time I see like like real war. Yeah, that was in uh, this uh, September twenty second, nineteen eighty. But like. I never stopped, like, you know, I still my dream, like, to be a pilot. Yeah. Well, and so at that point, you already were, right? I mean, you, you learned to fly before you could drive. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah. I told you at one point about with that aircraft, I was looking at them, like, I'm, I'm like, I'm joined, like, I'm interested, like, how we like releasing bombs. Yeah. Yeah. You wanted to get in on the action. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Somebody say it again. Yeah. Question. Well, just um, if you could tell us about your your path of you know how you learned to fly before you could learn to drive. Is is it the yeah. same in Iraq when when you were growing up that you had to be sixteen to drive, or could you drive before then legally? In Iraq, to be a drive in eighteen. 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 Yeah, you have to but get the driver license. But they allowed you to fly at fifteen. <laughs> that makes With sense. With my dad. Yeah. Like yeah, but it's not my my yeah. my myself. I mean, do you get a, a pilot license the same way at 15 or you just, you could fly? No, actually, my brother get a PPL when he was uh, 17. Oh, wow. 17 so or 18, like approaching 18. Yeah. 
yeah, it's like a flying club, like an aviation club. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I apologize on bouncing around. It made me think a little bit of just still t- kind of talking about your childhood because I find it fascinating. Growing up, were were guns a big part of Iraqi culture? Uh, I know you talked about BB guns and gophers, but yeah. did did most households have weapons, uh, and it, and it was common that people would would carry them around, or was it rare? Or most of the people they have like pistols, mm-hmm. and uh, some of them they have machine gun. From a registration standpoint, was the Iraqi government strict mm, about? No, them? no, we don't have like Nothing. a registration for that one. So you could just yeah. go buy whatever. Yeah, just go yeah. buy. Yeah. But we don't have stores like for these things. Yeah. But for BB gun, yes, we have for that one. But for pistols, you know, sometimes like they buy it from Jordan or buy it other country, or they buy it from the army. Like some of them, they pass it to them. Yeah. But the most of them, like you know, is that they are uh, officers, so they have they give them a, a pistol. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in in terms of crime, growing up, do you remember? You know, guns are a huge, hot, hotly debated topic here in the United States. Were guns used from a crime standpoint much growing up? Or was there a lot of theft, robbery, murder uh, with, with firearms, or was it not really a... No, before nothing. Yeah. So you, you could buy them anywhere. Everybody had them, but very, very rarely did people use them. Yeah, you can buy them from, like, different, uh, like, countries, but they don't have a special stores yeah. to sell those stuff, no. Yeah. Um, from you interviewing him over the course of uh, months, have I missed anything that you gathered from him during his childhood leading up until just before he joined the Air Force that, that you recall as being fascinating? I think for me the most fascinating part was, you know, I think... Climbing for, trees? Or? Climbing, yes. And the, his the first story, his very first memory, when he's about four or five, the he umbrella. jumps from a rooftop yeah. with an umbrella. Yeah. He thinks they're wings. He thinks he's going to fly. And he broke a lot of bones. And I think what struck me the most is that for him being a pilot, you know, and I always say this, it's not a job. It's like an identity. Yeah. This this pilot is is the blood coursing through his body. It's his heart and soul. And this is apparent to me through the, our entire time working together is it's not optional. He is a pilot. It's not yeah. what he chose to do with his life. It's not just something he studied. This is identity. This is legacy of his father, legacy of his brother. Yeah. And those two things are very deep themes of his story and very, you know, prevalent throughout his childhood and the stories jumping off the roof, you know, uh, making, you know, obsessing over his model aircrafts that he was putting together, making, stealing magazines from the air base so that he could study them better. I mean, it's just, you know, is it an obsession? I, I would say more an identity, yeah. you know, so that, yeah. that that's very much the part that struck me the most. Yeah. So I started dipping when I was in high school. Um, I started with pouches, as most kids do. Uh, ultimately, in the military, uh, I dipped the entire time I was there. A lot of us did. Um, you know, one of the things about dipping is that it, it kind of turns into a, a ritual where, it, you know, it's really part of uh, part of the culture almost uh, oftentimes in the military and in a lot of fields that uh, that are, are that way. And, and uh one of the things, obviously, you know, real, real tobacco, uh, isn't the best for you. Um, but because of that ritual being such a, an ingrained part of that culture, it's something that a lot of times we miss. And even when I got out of the Navy, uh, I still dipped for a number of years. Uh, I wish that I had had this product, black Buffalo. It's a, a tobacco free alternative. 
that I can tell you it looks, smells, tastes, uh, feels everything like the real thing, uh, but there is no tobacco in it. And uh, it's a phenomenal product. Uh, they have mint, wintergreen, blood orange, uh, straight peach. Um, what's cool is they also, they, they've got um, the, the straight as far as the, the cut. Uh, they've got long cut, they've got pouches. Uh, so it's really kind of a, a one-stop shop for tobacco-free alternatives that way. Uh, but they also have a zero uh, version, which has absolutely no nicotine. So you can get it with nicotine if you want the nicotine, uh, or you can get it without nicotine if, if you don't. Uh, it's all food-grade ingredients, um, green green cabbage essentially, uh, as well as pharmaceutical-grade nicotine if that's the, the option that you choose. Uh, but it's just a, an awesome company. It's veteran-started. Uh, and they're big supporters of the Mike Drop podcast, uh, and it's a product that uh, that I stand behind and and uh, absolutely endorse. It, it it's a great great crew of guys. What's really cool about uh, Black Buffalo is it it's uh, you know it's the look, the feel, the smell, the taste, the texture, everything the same as as regular dip. And uh, you know to me that's that's the the big thing missing from all all and any other alternatives, little pouches of nicotine or. Uh, any of the other stuff that doesn't use a, um, a product that, that really has that same, same feel. It, it doesn't feel like you're actually dipping it. So uh, Black Buffalo has done a, a masterful job at creating that same experience. Uh, the flavors are all on point. Uh, the long cut and the pouches are, are both just like the, the real thing. And again, the fact that you can, you can get it with nicotine if you want, uh, or you can get it completely nicotine free if you want. So Again, if you're 21 years or older uh, and you dip and you want uh, that tobacco-free alternative, go to blackbuffalo.com and the code is MikeDrop for 20% off. Uh, one of the stories about you crafting uh, planes and, and climbing up to the top of, uh, of the, the prayer tower, uh, if you could, can you share, share that story? Yeah, I used to like uh, make uh, aircraft models from styrofoam and cardboard. Yeah. What's perfect, like uh, I put all the... Dynamics like yeah. their aerodynamics are perfectly. Yeah. So I make one of them like it was big, huge, about more than like wingspan, maybe meter and a half, like about uh, let we say about seven feet, wow. more than seven feet. Yeah. So I make it. Then I have to test it. I test it from the roof. It's like, okay, but I need something higher. Yeah. So I tried first, I didn't tell her. I first I pull, pull it with the car, but something happened like after after takeoff, it turned to the left, then I get broken wing, get like that one. So I fix it, then I, I tell myself, okay, let's go there. So I go with my friend there. It's big, you do have to take it carefully, like, you know, because it's uh, like a surround, uh, uh, like stairs. Yeah. So it's very tight room to get there. When I get there, so I release it. Stays about seventeen minutes, maybe. Wow. 17, seventeen minutes. Yeah, because That's it was crazy. windy, yeah. and take us higher and higher and higher, and then land at the one of the like neighbor. So I went to take it. But the most funny things I didn't I think mention in the book. The guy who was responsible for the mosque, like cleaning or something like that. He noticed we are there, like you know, because we are loving and fun, like. Like laughing, yeah. he locked the door. <laughs> <laughs> That'll teach you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then we start cussing him. Then he <laughs> opened it. Oh, that's great. 
And so you, you did that a couple times, right? You built really yeah. to, to scale yeah. perfect ones and, and one where it hit your neighbor's front door and or, yeah. or right down front. Yeah, she, exactly. she was impressed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so one thing that I, I found fascinating was how young you were when you joined the Air Force. And, and I know you, even Saddam commented, you know, how, yeah. how young you looked. But um, <clears throat> I, I didn't realize that you could join the Air Force right right at 18 and go right into a pilot program. Um, can you kind of walk us through what that was like? Yes, actually, like after you finish like high school, you can join the Air Force like that. I mean, you are like 18 years old, maybe sometime younger, you didn't finish even 18, but still like you can join the Air Force after finish the high school. So I joined at that time and I start like uh, normally, like finish the college mm. and then, uh, because my father, like he was in a high position in Iraqi uh, Ministry of Defense. So he put me and in VIP squadron. So I started there. Yeah. And so did this, uh, I guess, taking one step back, uh, okay. when Iran and Iraq war happened, did your dad fly against Iran during that, excuse me, during that time? He was in a high uh, level position. So he fly, but very few. Like yeah. it's not like as a active other squadron. Like yeah, like he was uh, at that time. He was a general. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, was the was the Iraqi military overall? Was that something that kids looked at as um, something desirable to join? Like was that a big deal for kids growing up? Was that a respected? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, some like whatever. If you have, if you like to be. Uh, officer or a pilot so that's your dream you can join but most of them they scared because you know it's war yeah. start war iraqi iran and the other war uh, like with palestine long time ago yeah with the israel like you know that uh, was in 1973 was with uh, by the sina mm -hmm. and the other one 1967 so get, lo we, they lost many soldiers and officers uh, at that time so for most of them they scared to let the kids like them kids to join the army or air force and so um was was the d during the height of the iran iraq war was mm -hmm. there um there was a lot of casualties it was a pretty bloody yes uh, dif uh, difficult war uh can you kind of explain what it, what it was like being in the air force and 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 living through that yeah, actually, like uh, when the, the the jet fighters when they do mission, I was also like a VIP. I was like they if they have certain mission to attack Iran or certain target in Iran, so I took a delegation from head Iraqi Air Force headquarters, take them from Baghdad. Let's we say to go to Nasriya or go to Basra or to go to Kut or Saddam Air Base, wherever those who's gonna do the mission i take the like headed big officers from head iraq air force headquarters to that air base and stay with them so i see them like you know they mentioned they mentioned this like mentioned everything whatever is like what is gonna happen exactly and they take off some of them they get it back like they take off like six aircraft they came five aircrafts they lose one of them yeah yeah, so it's common. Yeah, it's common, yeah. but it's sad. But in general, during Iraqi-Iran war, 
more than million casualty yeah. people or killed. Yeah. Did you know a lot? Oh, my well, many, many, many friends. Many yeah, many friends, many like uh, from my family, like second cousin, my cousin, and many. Yeah. Even my first cousin, my first cousin, uh, she was uh, pregnant, and uh, that was actually 1991. So they wanna hit a uh, station, gas station, or something like that. But her house and very close to that one. And she get killed at that time. Oh wow! Yeah, that's my first cousin. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I, I know you know from reading your your dad had very strong opinions against Saddam and how he came to power, and that scared you. But it ultimately filtered down into you. You felt the same way during, especially during the war. Um, was it was it pretty common for? Um, these, whether it was like some bath party folks or even did the Fedayeen uh, Saddam, were, were they prominent then uh, with rounding people up and, and torturing them for, for talking bad about Saddam and being against the war? Or, or can you kind of tell us about that? Actually, they didn't torture them. They killed them. Really? Yeah. Just straight kill them? Even if you make a joke. Wow. If you put, make a joke and you, you mention Saddam's name, that's done. Yeah, it's, that's yeah. I mean, it's hard to even really yeah. imagine. And many times I told my father, please, please, dad, don't say anything, please. Yeah. Even in front of any kids. Yeah. You know, sometimes the kids, like, they're watching TV, and the father's sitting there, and Saddam, like, pop out in the TV. Yeah. So if, he, if you say something, and that's a little kid, oh, my dad, my dad had Saddam, so and so, he said that one, I mean, done. Who who were the people that would come, kill people? Like, what group was responsible for that? There was Saddam intelligence. They have. Did they have? An, was there a name for, of that? Was it? They call it uh, Iraqi intelligence, or they call it. Uh, I don't know. In Iraqi, they call it Jihad al Amn al Khas. That's a special like uh, people, very close to Saddam. And uh, do you know about how many of them there were, total? No, actually, I mean, was but a lot. Tens yeah, of thousands? Yes. Because, yeah. yes. I mean, to me, it's hard to imagine a country where there's millions of people that such a small group of people can terrorize at such a high level. You know, from a numbers standpoint, you, you know, the, the population outnumbers exactly, yeah. so much, but they're so scared of really a, a percentage or a fraction of a percentage. Um, how, how was that possible? Like, how, how did they have so much power being such a small group? Yeah, because, like, uh, when he received the 1979 to be, a, like, president of Iraqi president, so he, he recruited all his family, like, uh, from Tikrit. He recruited everything, like, he put him around him. Mm-hmm. So and put him many uh, like uh, offices, like in many different uh, like minister ministry, yeah, over there. So it was so, all family. Yeah, whole family. The, most of the people they scared from them, like you know they don't want to talk anything in, in the front of them, and they are very powerful. Yeah, yeah, they can say anything for you. You can say anything. Yeah, yeah. and. Uh, Pitching it back to Lauren, uh, in in hearing him describe some of these stories, did anything stick out to you as being kind of the most egregious or most, from an atrocity standpoint, like the the most shocking? 
I think there was a situation in which he said either first or second cousins. We wrote about this in the book in which something was said about Saddam and, you know, the, the man in question fled. And back home, he said, you know, I will kill both your sons if you don't return to take your punishment. And he stayed and the sons died. And, you know, three, I'm, of, them. three of them. I am a parent, I, you know, to live in this kind of fear and, and to have someone who's actually his family members imagine reading that letter. And, you know, we all think we know exactly what we would do, but this is a survival choice. This is one of these, you know, we, we see it played out in the movies, you know, these Walking Dead kind of scenarios where who lives, who dies, who's going to survive. And it, these are unthinkable situations. Yeah. And I think something that we don't fully understand. And, and I think, too, any of us that grew up in America, we don't know maybe even the psychological effects of not being able to actually audibly say your thoughts. Mm -hmm. We live in a land where you can really spout off just about anything. Yeah. You can say whatever you want. You can curse the name of anybody. And so to live so carefully where you're suppressing, not even to family members, not even to let it be heard, to say your thoughts, I think it's, you know, it's just a very different environment. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's an impossible scenario to imagine uh, <clears throat> as a parent being somewhere else and, you know, your yeah. kids' lives being threatened if you don't come home. I, I, I mean, I can't even imagine. Um, from <clears throat> So from that point on, um, you're in the VIP uh, squadron and, and you're flying around a, a lot of very important people and, and – kind of at the upper echelon of, of the government as it relates to, to military service. Um, talk about your first time that, that you actually met Saddam and, and flew him and, and walk us through that, that whole story. Yeah, actually I fly with him many times, but the first time was uh, when I took him to Mosul. He was like uh, eight at that time. So tomorrow, let's just say, like before, day before, one day, of the, of aid, so I took him to Mosul. This is first time I saw him, and I stay in Mosul, stay there for second day. Then he sent me like back to Baghdad, and he left. He stayed there in Mosul. Yeah. So this is first time actually I was like very like uh, nervous. Sure. Yeah, very yeah. like uh, I want to constrain. I don't want to do anything wrong. Yeah. I want to fly smooth. I want to yeah. <laughs> like everything should be perfect. Yeah, was but otherwise I was excited actually. Really? Yeah, at what, that time. What, was it hard to uh, reconcile your hatred for him and and also be excited? But was it hard to to figure out how to feel? Yeah, actually, I excited to, like to like a president as a president. Yeah. I'm gonna fly with the president. That one different story than Saddam. Yeah, that's like a position. But Saddam. And what was your What was your first impression of him when you when you saw him? Was Was he what you thought he would be in person? To be honest with you, he, he was nice all the time with the, with the pilots. Yeah, yeah. When he walk in, he say hi. How are you? Like, uh, what do you need? Do you have anything to do for you? Some no, thank you so very much. Yeah. So like, and when he walked out, like he said, thank you. And he sent us a gift at that time. Do 
do, do you know if any of the pilots ever said, yeah, you know what, I could use this and, and actually ask him for something? Or did everybody say, no, I don't need anything, I'm good? No, nobody, nobody answers. Nobody yeah. yes. I think you want to owe him yeah, a favor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what, I could use something. Um, how did he carry himself? Uh, and, like, Did you get the impression that you know, certain people have a, a certain presence about them, they, they carry themselves a certain way that they just exude, whether it's a powerful position, confidence, arrogance, uh, nervousness. I mean, did you pick up anything like that from him when you first met him and, and subsequently spending more and more time? Did, did you get a, a vibe from him at all? Yes, actually, when first time, like I, like I told you, like very nervous, my heart beating, I don't know, like 150 at that time. But after, like, after a couple of times, like when I fl- flew with him, like, no, like a routine yeah. mission. You work, walk in, good morning, good morning, sir, how are you? Good, good, done. Like, as a normal delegation. Yeah. Yeah, but... But did you, did you pick anything up from him as far as, his, like, his energy? Did, did he seem like a tyrant? Like, did he, did he come, come across to you as being an evil person? No, but I look at his eyes. His eyes, like, like sparkling. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Anyway, like, to be honest with you, I can't look at him. Like, you yeah. Know, just Intimidating? Like, yeah, like I put my eyes on the yeah. ground. Thank you, sir. Yeah. If you want to shake hands, okay. But we can, like, shake hands unless he wants. Right. Yeah, because yeah. they tell us don't, don't clo- go close to him, don't shake hands, nothing. Yeah. Unless he. Yeah. Um, I know there's some stories about seeing him in his underwear and and, uh, <laughs> and some other embarrassing stuff. I'd love to <clears throat> kind of pitch it to both of you guys to uh, to go through um, if you can kind of maybe prompt uh, some some of the good stories that, uh, that that are worth telling. Obviously, you don't want to share everything from the book with Saddam in particular, yeah. Yeah. or just interesting flights. Uh, there's both. A, there's a couple. Okay. Uh, to me, one of the most interesting, it's, it's not a long story, but it's just simply that, you know, he thought a door was jammed, that he had already landed. He thought a door was jammed, and someone said, you know, the door's shut. Typically, it's not shut between the cockpit and, and this particular room in the jet. And he goes and gives it a quick knock and an open, and Saddam's standing there in his underwear. And, you know, it's a small story, and but... For him, first and foremost, you know, the fear you feel, you've sure. seen the guy, maybe he's not having a good day, maybe it's not going to go well for you after this. But what struck me most is, you know, to be up close and personal, there is a humanity to this person. And even someone who, you know, committed incredible atrocities, what he saw was the man, yeah. you know, and <laughs> at, at the end of the day, you know, whether it's Hitler or it's Saddam or, you know, these kind of different people, you know, at the end of the day, these are men in their underwear, you know, yeah. for me, it's a metaphoric in a way. And, you know, as he talked about, you know, his friendliness, there is, you know, two sides to it. And, and from what I experienced from him, from the stories he told, a, a very um, extreme bipolar, you get one Saddam or the other Saddam. And if it's happy Saddam, it's okay. But if it's angry Saddam, then it, you're gonna you're taking your last breath, yeah. you know. And so I think there had to be some extreme bipolar in between there. So for me, that's a, a story that stuck out. And then you know, one that I think would be better for him to tell is the classified meeting that took place between him and the Prime Minister of Israel. Yeah. Because for me, that's an interesting one, and I think it would be worthwhile for him to to tell how it went down in the story of how that happened. <clears throat> 
before you jump into that, did anything yeah. happen with the underwear story? Was he pissed? <laughs> yeah, actually, I was like very like uh, scared when I, I opened the door. Yeah, he said, "Hey, hey, wait!" So I went to the cockpit, sit in my seat, and then he, when he worked out, he told me, "I'm, I told, I'm very sorry, sir. Very sorry. I thought like the door was like something happened to the lock or like jamming something like that." Or so he told me, uh, "Easy, easy." Easy, why in a hurry? I thought, oh, again, sorry, sorry. Then he said, tell me, don't worry. And he tapped on my shoulder. So at that time, I really, I start breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I bet you're about yeah. shitting your pants. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you know, did he carry a gun on him all the time? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. A, pi- a pistol? <clears throat> yeah, a pistol on the side. And even the, say, like his uh, security bodyguards, those, yeah. they carry guns, machine guns. Did he... Uh, was he forward about let like would he show it? Would he make sure he, everybody saw that he was carrying it? He, he because he wearing like uh, army uniform oh, okay. and a gun on the side. Yeah, okay. Like a cowboy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John Wayne. <laughs> John Wayne. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, if you could tell the story about the uh, the meeting with with the Israel Prime Minister, because that's one that I, I think very few people knew know yeah. even to this day that even happened, and one that only just recently is he able to talk about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is something that he's for many years lived in fear of assassination for, and so the ability to freely speak about it now here publicly yeah. is 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 really incredible. Yeah, that was actually later in 1987 uh, after a meeting between Saddam and. Uh, Al-Assad, Syrian president. Uh, that uh, that meeting uh, actually it's run by uh, King Hussein. That was in uh, 19 also 87 in uh, H5. It's an air base in uh, Jordan. After a while from that meeting, it was the uh, end of the week. Uh, so they said like to prepare, make aircraft ready. It's a VIP movement, but we didn't know any anything should, should be like my friend go with this mission but he was live in Fallujah like about 80 kilometers uh, west of Iraq, uh, Baghdad so he was his day off to want to take it off so he want to catch the time to get there early he told me can you fly instead of me at the mocking I love to fly anyway you're gonna donate is like mission I am ready yeah <laughs> okay. so I was sitting in the aircraft. They pulled the aircraft in the VIP, uh, where is uh, like uh, halt they call it there. So, so uh, I was waiting at the cockpit, and suddenly Saddam appeared. So he he was like wearing suit, like regular suit. It's not army uniform. So he walked to the aircraft, say hi guys, how are you? Good sir. So he said, do you know where, where we're going? I told him, no. He, he told me to Habania Air Base. I told him which one, the top or the lower one, because they have two of them. He told me the top one. Okay, sir. So I thought somebody's going to walk with him. So they kept the door open, the flight engineer, keep the door open. He told me, that's it, just by myself. Close the door. Uh, we, I didn't know anything about this mission. So I said, what is a routine mission for me, that one? So fly, take off normal to Habania, establish contact with Habania. 
tower. So immediately he told me like, okay, you're clear to land. Still on fire. Should be like, call me two minutes, call me like final. So clear to land, okay, clear to land. I land there. He came to the cockpit. He said, park next to King Hussein aircraft. I was, I seen it like on the side. And the dispersal. So I went there. King Hussein aircraft on the left, I parked right off it. Opened the door, he walked out. Two people, they came from the other side from uh, King Hussein aircraft that was walking together until past nose of the aircraft. I was sitting there watching them. I saw King Hussein and the Israeli Prime Minister, Mr. Rabin. And Saddam walked together. They meet each other just like to the left of my aircraft, between two aircraft, but wow. I still like, that it's not even, let me say, uh, 30 feet away. Yeah. I'm in the top, in the cockpit, I see everything, but I can't hear anything. Wow. So they shaking hands together, King Hussein and uh, Saddam and uh, Mr. Rabin and Saddam, smiling together. They start, they walk to the King Hussein aircraft, they get inside. About three hours, three hours and a half, that's meeting. But nobody knows what's going on there. And you were sitting in the cockpit the whole time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was shocked. Like, you know, and I was like, ask my friend. Like, like, I was shocked for a minute. Many things happened in my head. So I tell him, did you see what I see? He told me, yes. I told him, who is that? Do you know who is that? He told me, yes. Is it Mr. Rabin? He told me, yes, absolutely. So at, at that point in your life, did you, did you still view Israel as, as the bad guy? No. I mean, so even then you kind of had, no, no. had different feelings. If I, I can only assume, I guess I'm asking if, if the Iraqi population knew that that meeting took place, would all hell break loose? Like would, would people lose their minds or, or, I mean, obviously that was not something that they wanted. Some of them, yes. Some of them, no. Yeah. yeah. And so did anybody say anything to you at that point to say you didn't see any of this or did they? Yeah, actually, after like uh, the meeting done, they start walking in front of the aircraft a couple of times, like back and forth. And they smiling, they talking together, but I can't hear him. I'm like still like in the, uh, in the cockpit. So he walk in to the aircraft. He say, okay. I told him, sir, where are you, where are you heading? Now, he told me to Baghdad International, which is Saddam International before, before Baghdad. Now it's Baghdad International Airport. Okay, he, he told me, you fly first. But it was like happy, hugging, like, you know, shaking hands perfectly. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and smiling from ear to ear, as, as yeah. he said, yeah. yeah. So I fly there, then after landing Baghdad Airport, Many Mercedes came to the aircraft by the door. He disappeared. I don't know which car he he ride. I don't know. So before he he walk out, he came to the cockpit and he put his hand on my shoulders, my shoulder and the other friends. He said, "Guys, did you see something?" Immediately, without any thinking, like you know, or struggling at him. No, sir. That's good. Then he tapping my shoulder yeah wow so that's like so, uh, some shit out of a movie yes, like a yes, mob boss yes, scene or yes. something. and at that day 
my friend, he should be walk. Wow. He, he make to uh, from Baghdad to his where he live in Fallujah is not even forty five minutes drive. He take him about nine hours or eleven hours. I don't know. I don't remember because he told me all the roads completely closed. Yeah, yeah, from Romadi to Habania, from Baghdad to Habania, all around the area within the radius maybe 100, 150 kilometers. Mm. That's completely like surrounding with the special forces for Saddam and they closed all the roads at that time. Wow. One, one thing that you talked about uh, in terms of the application process and it, it made me think of, you know, potentially why you were selected is that, you know, for sure he, he didn't want anybody that had any Shia affiliation. Um, but the fact that it was kind of surprising to read that, that you basically didn't really have much of a religious upbringing because that's fairly rare there, correct? I mean, most people at, at least are either Sunni, Sunni or Shia by and large, right? I mean, is it, is it pretty rare to not, not be religious growing up? And, and do you think that the fact that you weren't helped get you in uh, to the position? Yeah, you actually, first, thing, first time when I joined the VIP squadron, like we have a couple pilots, Shia, like Shia, like. But the most of them, like 80% Sunni, 85% Sunni. Even though Shia, there was like good pilots, very professional. Yeah. But he like moved them to other squadron, just completely Sunni. Yeah. And anyone has like his family, like I was like, I have uh, my, my wife's parents and actually her sister and her brother live in the United States. So I moved lately from this VIP uh, squadron to other squadron because my my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law yeah. in the United States. Yeah, wow. So they're scared. Even when, when they move me, actually, I tell the officer over there, but he's my friend. I tell him, you know, I'm very proud. I'm very happy. Like uh, uh, Saddam Hussein scared for my brother and sister-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he told me, hey, 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 Mohammed. I didn't hear anything. Yeah. I said, I know you hear very well. Yeah. Told me, no, I don't hear. Just get out. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, as you know, I'm into uh, health and fitness uh, and specifically how nutrition relates to it. Um, coffee is a, has been a staple of mine and, and I think most people's for a long time. Um, as you know, I'm a big uh, proponent of Mudwater, which is a sponsor of this show. They have been uh, for a while now and, and we have a great partnership. I love their product. Um, it's a phenomenal alternative to coffee. Uh, for me, you know, coffee, there's jitters, there's mold in it. Uh, you know, a lot of times it tends to, to kind of upset my stomach. Uh, but Mudwater has adaptogenic uh, mushrooms. Um, there's a fraction of the caffeine that coffee has. There's a little bit, but it's very, very little. Um, and it, it really leans on, on mushrooms and the blend of matcha and chai for kind of that sustained energy that that continues to go and, and doesn't crash the way coffee does when uh, when it runs out. Uh, they use lion's mane for alertness, cordyceps to support physical performance, chaga and raishi to support the immune system, turmeric for soreness, and cinnamon for antioxidants. Um, I, I really enjoy that first cup of warm liquid in the morning by taking mud water instead of coffee, and I'll put uh, just a splash of, of heavy cream uh, or even some protein powder uh, some collagen powder, um, and I also throw uh, usually a couple drops of uh, stevia or uh, monk fruit vanilla to make it kind of a, a thick, 
normal morning coffee ritual type of uh, concoction. And uh, I got to tell you, it, it, it does wonders for me. And, and I'm really, really glad that I switched. It's been, you know, better part of a year now, uh, you know, that I've been taking that uh, and using that as part of my uh, daily morning routine. And it's fantastic. I love it. I, I can't re recommend it enough. Uh, it's 100% USDA, uh, organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Uh, and they also donate to the Berkeley Center for Science of Psychedelics, which is, uh, you know, groundbreaking and leading research to help veterans with PTSD uh, and other uh, associated illnesses and, and uh, syndromes. So uh, great cause, great company, phenomenal product. If you go to Mudwater, that's M-U-D-W-T-R dot com forward slash Mike to su support this show and the product uh, and use the code Mike Mud. M-I-K-E-M-U-D, all caps, for 15% off. That's, again, mudwater, M-U-D-W-T-R dot com forward slash Mike. And the code is Mike Mud, M-I-K-E-M-U-D, all caps, for 15% off. Go check them out. Did you find that, uh, and, and did Saddam tend to favor you or other pilots? Like, do you know if he would pick and say, I want you to fly or, or, you know, was there a preference that way? Saddam, no, but actually I used to fly with him many times because we go under uh, like a special uh, medical check mm -hmm. every six months. Imagine if you have fingers in, in your feet, in your toes, <laughs> yeah. you're not allowed to fly with him. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I know you feed that one. You're going to shake your hand with the feet. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so most of them, so they get a report. Yeah. So this one, avoid, 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 just you, 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 yeah. you can fly with Saddam. Yeah. Do you know about how many times you flew him? Maybe more than between 15, 20 times. 15, 20 times. Yeah. Um, can you uh, tell any, any stories of any other flights that you took with him that stand out? Like? Story. There's another really good one when you flew to, from Djibouti to uh, Magadishu. <laughs> to me, that is maybe my favorite favorite one it was like with it's the ministry of commerce yeah right? ministry of commerce yeah commerce, I mean. and full engine failure upon takeoff first that yeah you want me yeah yeah that was actually uh, i don't know which year exactly around like uh, 80s yeah yeah i was a mission to take Minister of Commerce from Baghdad, he carrying uh, to Baghdad to Yemen, Yemen, like Sana'a, Sana'a, Aden, then Djibouti, then Magadishu, Somal. Then get back to Baghdad. That's my mission. He was carrying, I don't know, letters from Saddam to the president, I don't know, at that time. I don't know what happened exactly. So, as soon as the takeoff from uh, but before that, actually, uh, <laughs> my, my, I saw my neighbor. She has, uh, like, I call her wedge. I don't know. She's Practicing when witchcraft. I see him, yeah, when I see her, something happened. Yeah. That's my wife. It's a bad luck charm. Yeah, my wife <laughs> tells me all the time. But I, I didn't realize, actually, yeah. until that happened to her. She's putting a so hex I see on her. Hi, sure. good morning, good morning. But I didn't constrain or realize what's going to happen exactly. So I take her from Baghdad about 50 kilometers, uh, kilometers like south of Baghdad, south uh, west of Baghdad, in Hashmiya. I don't know if you serve in Iraq. I did. Yes, oh yeah, sure. So when, when over Hashmiya, 
a bomb I hear like something like bomb hit the aircraft bombs That's, are not good yeah, yeah so <laughs> I look <laughs> so I look for uh, engine fire number number two which is like the main engine for like hydraulic system and for uh, more power like a generator and bleed air everything I mean ram air or bleed air so anyway so I try to control this situation after I control it everything and the military of commerce like he was like panic over there he sent his security or secretary what happened and so on so it's everything is okay so after like control everything and do all the fire extinguisher and drills like in the, for emergency I realized shut like I shut down completely the engine and control it I realized I'm overweight 10,000 pounds. Jesus. Yeah, that's fuel. <clears throat> I have to dump it. I have only like maybe 15 minutes to land or 12 minutes to land. That's. Or you're going to land one t- way or another. Yeah, <laughs> this one it takes like takes about 30 minutes to get rid of those 10,000 pounds. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize it took that long. Yeah, so. <laughs> all out, 10,000 yeah. pounds, yeah. yeah. So actually, it's in, uh, I realized also, uh, look at me. Myself, I thought, okay, you can't do Jetson if you have engine fire. And you can't do Jetson over city. And you can't do Jetson if you have a close to CB cloud, like thunderstorm. So I have two situations, over city and I have engine fire. But I have to. So if I land at this weight, something happened to the structure or for the landing gears. Something happened, like it's, a, it's over, over the limit yeah. for limitation for the aircraft. Okay, I contact the tower. I tell him, like, I have, after he knows, like, I have engine f- fire or something. He, st- he handled my friend, like, the co-pilot handled the situation for the communications. So I tell him, okay, I'm going to do Jetson, just look at turbine. So we look to the aircraft, if there is black smoke or white smoke. Usually when you do that one, it's a white smoke. So, okay, start to do Jetson. So he told me, okay, white, white, white. So okay, okay, okay. That mean okay, like I, like the fire completely done, no more fire. So I kept, I kept the releasing the jet fuel until the short final. So I land overweight, but much better than ten thousand pounds. Maybe I land around uh, six thousand over, or five thousand yeah. over, but yeah. it was good. It's better than better 10, than 10. Yeah. yeah. Then I land there. Uh, they change the aircraft. Not even hour, take hour. Wow. So then I fly again. Same aircraft. No time to rest. Yeah. yeah, no, no. <laughs> he has a letter from Saddam. He has to get it. So I mean. <laughs> so I fly again. So land in Sana'a, normal, then flying to Adan, normal, then to Djibouti. I stay in Djibouti. How how long are these flights time time wise about? Yeah, like from to yeah, yeah from uh, from Baghdad to uh, Sanaa about four hours, about four hours four hours and a half from Sanaa to uh, Aden is not even thirty minutes. Oh okay. Yeah, because the same Yemen was north and south from uh, from from Aden to. Djibouti just across the border like you know it's very tight mm. it's not even 35 40 minutes 
And then Mogadishu. Mogadishu, no. So I land there. I land and uh, stay in Djibouti. I'm reached around night, like it was night, night time at that day. So stay. He told me tomorrow I have to leave to Djibouti. I mean to uh, Somal, to Mogadishu. Okay. What time? Because 7.30, I remember. That should be. I went there like early, about hour early. But if you like check the aircraft, do flight plan, do many things, read the notams, whatever they have. So he came to the aircraft and take off. Uh, the route takes about two hours and a half, but it's jungle, like all the no nav aids, no nothing there. You oh, have really? to, yeah, you have to depend on your, uh, they call it uh, VLF or INS, they call it. It's look like uh, GPS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the VL, a very low frequency. It's like GPS, exactly. But There's diff- cannibal communities there in the jungle, as you said, right? Yeah, jungle. So not the, no enough is on jungle because no. it's like, who's going to live there? Because they need to do service for those stations on the ground. So who's going to reach them? And it's not worth it to put it there. Like, so anyway, so I have to do operation normal every 10 minutes, every 15 minutes. Like they call it a blind transmit by HF, even VHF doesn't like reach because VHF line of sight and HF is a high like range. So I, I keep every 10 minutes, 15 minutes, this is Iraqi so-and-so level, so-and-so from Djibouti to Magadish or time out from Djibouti, so-and-so, just give them look, my location. Mm-hmm. Operation normal, operation like So if something happened, so they can do search in this, uh, this area. And then I start like uh, approaching uh, Magadisho. So it's still like within range for the VHF, for the Magadisho Center. So I can Magadisho Center, so Iraqi so-and-so level, uh, so-and-so estimated time for arrive. Like normal, like uh, communications. Nothing, nobody answer, again. Nothing. I started approaching the airfield now. So I came to the final, but I still look around. So I pass, it's, it's the right of the final actually. So just pass close to the tower. It's a low level. I pass, I do, I thought it was like I have radio failure. So I do like procedure for radio failure, which is shaking the wings, pass over the tower. I do circle another circuit. I go around, nothing there. It should be like I reach, like uh, they call it uh, flares. Red don't land, like uh, green you clear to land. Still nothing. 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 I did again, nothing. So then I tell myself, okay, let's land. Now I have fuel. So I land there. I land there, then I go exit. Even they don't have taxiway, they have to go back around or backtrack on the runway. They don't have taxiway on the side, just the same runway. End of the runway, turn around, go back to the dispersal. So uh, I saw, as soon I approached the dispersal, so I saw two cars coming to us. So they, they walk out from the car, they jump from the car, I was stopped at that time, opened the door, they came. I can realize it's Iraqi faces because they're different like African and then Asian like Iraqi. So they came to the aircraft. Uh, 
They get incited. Oh, guys, oh, why are you coming? <laughs> why are you coming? So they had why no idea. Like, yeah, yeah, the why. They have guys, they have military corps now, today. Just happened like about an hour ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, my God. So I turn off the engines, then I can go anywhere because I, have, I don't have fuel. So I hear bullets of like tons of bullets like around the city, like machine gun, bombing, boom, boom, like all of, around that one. So they took the Ministry of Commerce to the Iraqi embassy. Wow. One of the car and the other car stayed with us. And two people, they stayed with us. So, and uh, I told him, he told me, we need that fuel. I need fuel. So he told me, I don't know from where. Get yeah. fuel. So at this moment, like I see person walk to the aircraft. He's from Somalia. He say, hi, hi, Captain. I. He told me, you need help? I said, yes, I need fuel. Okay, he said, he told me, okay, let me see what I can do. Do you have like Bowser that can for the fuel? No, no. He went and he came back. He told me I have barrels and the pump. <laughs> Is it okay? <laughs> yeah. It's okay. How long did that take? Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Two weeks later. Yeah. yeah, so he bring it with the two wheelers and wow. like back and forth and pumping. So until I I didn't like fully fuel, but enough for Jeddah. I had to fly to Jeddah. Yeah. Next step. Because he told me, I want to, the Minister of Commerce, I want to go to Umrah, visit Mecca. So I want to go yeah. to Jeddah. Yeah. So anyway, I got <coughs> fuel. How long did it take to fuel up? Well, all together about eight hours. Yeah. Like all together. Jeez. Until came the minister, like started, like getting dark. Yeah, wow. Like yeah, almost like. Yeah. So when I fly, I tell like your normal procedure, like you know, after takeoff you make a right over the city, set heading to Jeddah. But when I fly, like I didn't go like normal procedure. I get a low level flight, go to the water over the water, then ocean that one, start climbing over the ocean and about twenty thousand feet, then a turn. Over the city, because away from Citrella, away from rockets, away from machine gun, I don't know who's going to shoot us. Yeah. At that time, it was good. everything is upside down. Then said heading to Jeddah. When we reached Jeddah, get to the hotel, all smell like fuel, <laughs> gas, like, you know, dust. I don't know, like, yeah. like, like, like mechanic yeah. person. Yeah. I think the moral of the story is if your neighbor's practicing witchcraft, so, yeah. Yeah. So don't, that, don't talk that to time, the neighbor. Yeah. At that time, I didn't, I didn't realize so that one. Even when I actually, when I re, uh, get make it home, I told my wife, this is what happened to me. And do you know why? I saw, I saw my neighbor at that time. She told me, I told you. I told you. So yeah. I start to avoid her, like, yeah. you know. Yeah. What uh, what plane were you flying in, and was it usually the same type of aircraft? I fly. That's for the VIP Jetstar. 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 Uh, they call it Lockheed three two nine. And uh, about so how many seats are in that? In uh, altogether fourteen seats. Fourteen seats, yeah. and I mean like a VIP. VIP. Yeah. yeah. Um, were there any markings on the plane? Uh, like was the Iraqi flag and the? Was yeah, it's the, like uh, actually this one. It's belong Iraqi Air Force, but. Even run by Iraqi Air Force, but registration by Iraqi Airways. Oh, okay. And the, the, even the color for the Iraqi Airways, but it's run by Iraqi pilots. Okay. So I mean, Air Force pilots. So if 
the the Somalians they would have seen what they would have thought is just an Iraqi airways Iraqi airways and even uniform yeah. when I have mission outside the country I wear uh, airlines uniform really yeah what was it was it just to like n- nobody knows I'm I'm like captain yeah. or major or colonel yeah. nobody knows oh, that's wild. yeah just inside the Iraq I really it's my like ranks normal yeah. like a suit a flying suit yeah normal but outside no even passport, Iraq Air, Airways, really, ID Iraq Airways, the whole thing, huh? <laughs> yeah, whole thing. Yeah. I have two. Did Iraq. they <laughs> did they instruct you to use that as a cover? Like if you were talking to people, you would just say you're you're an Iraqi Airway pilot. Yes, yeah. nobody knows. Nobody yeah. knows. I'm like a military uh, Air Force. <laughs> were, so were the, were there? I mean, obviously there were times where you flew Saddam outside of the country. How how did you kind of um, make that that work? If you're pretending to be an uh, Iraqi Airways pilot, but you have Saddam with you. Actually, Saddam never like go to outside the country with me, just inside the country, just okay. one time to Jordan. To the Jordan, that was yeah. it, okay. Yeah. Um, it was like, I was like normal. Yeah. Okay. Like I take him as, a, I put my uniform. Yeah. To Jordan, when you go to Jordan, like because it's air base. Yeah. So they, they know, sorry. Yeah. They know about the, okay. our aircraft. Yeah. Um, so kind of moving forward, you, you flew Saddam a number of other times prior between then and when the first Gulf War took place. Um, were there any other trips that you took Saddam on that stand out as being memorable before the first Gulf War happened? First Gulf War by Iraqi Iran or by Kuwait? Kuwait. Kuwait. I fly, actually, after that, after that, because they hit all the aircraft. So just one left, actually, they took it to Iran. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what was it like for you um, when the Kuwait invasion took place and, and America got involved in the first first Gulf War? What was that like for you? To be honest with you, nobody knows about the situation between Iraq and Kuwait, or Iraq, Saddam is going to take over Kuwait. So you were nobody just a surprise. I was. I wasn't like, I wasn't before two weeks about before uh, August 2nd, I was in uh, July, July 14th, July 15th, around this time. I was with the President Arafat. Was the situation, tension between Iraq and Kuwait. He tried to solve the problem. I was, la- I landed in Kuwait. Then after that, I was in, uh, I was in Cairo. At the ni- same night, at the same night, at that night, when when he took over Kuwait, I was in Cairo with the, with Tariq Aziz. But he's supposed to be stay with him four days or second days. He came. Like the uh, the security, they came to us. They told him, "Okay, the the minister, I need you to go there to the aircraft today. We're gonna get back to Iraq." But nobody knows why. So I land at that time uh, at around. 10, 10.30, I was tired. So my squad leader told me, okay, Mohammed, don't come uh, normal like tomorrow. This came like late, hour late, whatever, because I'm tired, like. I told him, okay. So when I get, second day when I get there, I look, every, everything's upside down. What happened? The guy was, Saddam take over the Kuwait. Nobody knows. But I was like uh, very, most of the Iraqi, they don't like these steps. Mm-hmm. 
even the leaders, they don't like these steps. Did you guys view uh, Kuwait uh, just as a, as a friendly neighbor? I mean, were, were there any tension? Was there tension between Iraq and Kuwait at that time from your perspective? In Kuwait, they have many situations, many like they stand beside Iraq during Iraqi-Iran war. So Iraqi Air Force, they need, they use the bases, especially when they land short fuel. Sometimes they make 25, go inside the Iran, away from over Tehran, they came to short fuel. Mm-hmm. Or they go fly over those petrol uh, stations. So they came short fuel, they land in Kuwait, they take fuel, then continue to back to Iraq. Yeah. So, I mean, many many things like it. it's a good situation with Iraq. With Iraq, they stand beside Iraq. Yeah. I don't know what happened. He's he decide by himself. Nobody yeah. knows at all. Yeah. Nobody knows. So how did how did that change? what you were doing in the military, did it change or did you just keep kind of going as normal? Because After 1991, everything turned upside down. Everything got to worse situation, everything. Yeah. What, what was it like for you when America came and, and decided to... I wish I had won in 1991 to come completely, to take Saddam at yeah. that time, but I don't know why I stopped. Yeah, I don't it, know why either. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hold, Most hold, people don't know why. Hold the people in Iraqi, they thought they're going to... Okay, they're gonna finish Saddam. Yeah, they're gonna was, do what? Uh, where were you when uh, when the big air campaign from the United States? Where were you at? Were you up in Mosul? And no, I was uh, first day on nineteen seventeenth on January January seventeenth, nineteen ninety one. I was like uh, do v- uh, evacuation for the aircraft, they, because they said like America they're gonna hit all the air bases. So we tried to get it. West of Iraq, uh, it's which is now Al Assad, mm-hmm. they call it uh, Al Qaeda Air Base, and uh, west of Iraq, okay. before Qadisiyah Air Base. So we take twenty-two, three aircraft over there, basically to hide them. Or hide try them, to hide yeah. Them. They put them like in the shelters, like yeah. that's that's exactly on. 17 on 16th January 16th 1991 at the same day at night early morning around four o'clock they attacked the airbase like I was like sleeping in the bed so boom boom like everywhere there like uh, castle bombs everything so after the sunrise goes up after the sunrise so we went to the aircraft it's completely like suit like you know just nothing just you see like uh, ruins yeah <laughs> yeah were, so were you scared at that point yes yeah. yeah yeah actually so i told them okay i don't have to stay here because my aircraft they get that's it done so one of the officers like i don't know his name he has car so i'm going to baghdad tomorrow okay just drop me at the al-muthanna air base because my car over there so I get back all day, like, you know, attacking uh, pump station, uh, bridges, attacking uh, communication uh, stations, uh, you know, because first thing yeah, they call it like, you know, communication and uh, transportation, those things, mm-hmm. like, you know. What, um, what was the direction from your superiors? Did, did, like, did you have orders from 
from your higher ups that were saying, okay, hey, America is attacking. We need you to do this. Like no, what? because they even they attack the so you had my nothing. air base. Like that's why I lose my so like, lookbook. One of them. Oh, okay. So they attack the headquarters. Like I mean, my squadron office. So basically, like you're not hearing from any of your higher ups as to what <coughs> you're supposed to be. No, doing. just said like you know, go home, guys, stay home, because they want to. They don't want to like put us all of us like in one yeah. spot. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they said like and try to be away in from buildings, yeah. whatever. So we stay home, keep in touch on the phone. Yeah. By the phone. Like. So during the whole air campaign, the shock and awe, kind of the uh, partial invasion, sort of um, during the Gulf War, I guess, which was very short. Once once it subsided, I mean, you were just basically hunkered down during that period, and then afterwards, what what did they ask you to do, and what did you do for the Iraqi? Air Force after that? Nothing there because we don't have aircraft. Just go to the squadron, like, you know, just normal building, like they move us to uh, school, actually, mm-hmm. at that day, at that time. So we try to get meet each other in the school. Then after that, they move me to uh, other squadron uh, in a Rashid Air Base. So I started there. One okay. thing that I found interesting is that during this time, Saddam put a bounty on the heads of downed American and British pilots, and he actually prepared a room in his house. Yeah, that's really. And he was listening yeah. to the radios and did his best to. He wasn't able to actually harbor one, but he prepared a special room in his house for it. Wow! And was prepared to do that. I, I found that to be very interesting, and for him. The pilot code is first and foremost. Yeah. And he was actually sitting there ready to do it and, and listening yes. to the radios. And I found that quite remarkable part of his story at, at this point in time. Oh, it for sure is. That yeah. makes me curious as to, from, from your perspective, the overall feel both of the Iraqi people that you knew and the circle of the Iraqi military that you served in, what was their perception of America doing what they were doing? Did, did you view that as this, this may be a lucky break? Did you look, of it, look at the United States as, as the enemy? How, how did you kind of view that? Most of the people, they, they love America. You, even during the bombings? And yes. They, they wanted yes, that because, to happen? Because he put us many times, like, like he did many stupid things, war between Iraq and Iran, kill about a million Mm-hmm. people for no reason and uh, for the Kuwait also yeah. I mean it's like innocent people like innocent country help you a lot why you go overnight you get good invade everything there like you know take over all the country mm-hmm. yeah so I, I guess with that then I can only assume that there was disappointment when America didn't finish yeah so at that we wish point, at that time. Yeah. I mean, w- was it disappointment or was it anger? I mean, were you now kind of mad and, and scared that Saddam was going to go on a on a, a worse rampage, or or what was the feeling like in the country? I, was after? Fe- I would feel like when I thought like America going to take over everything about Saddam, like you know, but they leave him. So I thought it was a bad luck again. Yeah. We have to deal with this guy and so, more years. And so, is it safe to say that the United States pretty much took out? All of the Iraqi aircraft during the campaign, did any of them survive? I mean, were there any aircraft left, or did we destroy everything? Uh, I think it's have 
One of them. One. <laughs> one, one. Yeah, one of them. That's they call it. I don't know if that's lucky or not. Like, I don't know yeah, if I want to fly like that one. SU, SU, Sikhoi, they call it. Yeah. SU-25, which is a very advanced aircraft. Yeah. It's a Russian. Yeah, it's right? Russian. It has two uh, squadrons, East Squadron 16 aircraft. All of them, they move it to uh, Iran. And uh, one, one left. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I want to take a second to talk about something near and dear to my heart. And that is a staunch supporter of this podcast, which is Bub's Naturals. Uh, the hat sitting in front of me uh, here on our coffee table here in the studio belonged to Glenn Doherty. His nickname was Bub. Uh, I did two platoons with him. And his childhood best friend uh, and another colleague of theirs, uh, Sean is the best friend, TJ is their colleague, uh, started Bub's Naturals, which is a collagen and MCT oil company uh, in Bub's or Glenn's honor. And, um, you know, for me, it's, it's uh, an absolute honor to be sponsored by and working with a company that, um, you know, was started in the honor of one of my closest friends and, and a guy that I went to war with. And, uh, you know, the, the Bubs brand is not only super quality, um, you know, collagen, uh, collagen powder as well as MCT oil powder, um, you know, but they also give back to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. Uh, they donate proceeds from their product sales to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation, which, uh, you know, to me just furthers, uh, you know, the, the mission set on Veterans Day. They give 100% back. So uh, I do believe it's the best collagen on the planet. Uh, I like to mix it in with uh, morning coffee. The MCT oil powder, the same thing. Uh, mixes in very easy. It tastes great. Uh, and it just kind of adds everything that you want to start your day off from a brain health standpoint from uh, joint support, gut support, um, you know, MCT oil and collagen are, are two components, especially as, as we age, uh, that are integral components to, uh, to health. And so, uh, to be able to work with Bubs Naturals and, uh, be able to, to work with them and, and sponsor a product that, uh, number one is a high quality product. And number two is, is so near and dear to, uh, you know, to my heart and to the mic drop podcast for, for who it, uh, was started for and what it stands for, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's an amazing, amazing place to be. So, um, it is whole 30 approved. Um, it's, uh, sport certified, so you're not uh, going to run into any problems with that. Um, and I will say that, um, you know, right now they're, they're offering, uh, 20%, <clears throat> 20% off if you go to bubsnaturals.com and, uh, use the mic drop code. So, uh, I really highly encourage you to, to try it out incorporated into your day day to day for joint health, for brain health, uh, for cognition, for gut health, and, uh, and to support an amazing organization that does a lot of things, uh, in Glenn Bubbs honor. So, uh, go to bubsnaturals.com. Mic drop is the code 20% off. Um, so from that point on, you basically don't have a job. And, one, and one, sorry, one, uh, also illusion there was, but they have a couple like Mirage, make 21, yeah. but somewhere how they hide it, helicopters. Yeah. What is like, one like a handful? Like yeah. it's not yeah. just one here or there. Yeah. No, like yeah. all of the big squadrons were decimated. Yeah. 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 Um. So you basically were out of a job at that point then. Yes, I moved to uh, other squadron. Yeah. And and uh, what I did you start, do? I start uh, go to uh, finish uh, flight instructor school. I want to have uh, been like at that time uh, flight instructor in the squadron. We have a couple aircraft left, so we can fly just locally. Then after that, I went to, um, they call it, 
I start teaching aerodynamics and fly safety for uh, for no uh, aircraft for, though, or for officers they want to go get like from captain to major. This is like uh, they call it. Uh, they have to take this course, refreshment course, like yeah. refreshment course. So I teach them there. Then I went to like uh, to uh, semi-retired, which is uh, to Iraqi. Um, they call it. Uh, warriors old warriors whatever those like just sitting home and j- take my salary yeah so that was in uh, 1998 so from 1991 to 1998 did did iraq successfully rebuild their their aircraft inventory no no so they like so no. seven years Even later they parts, still had basically nothing no parts yeah wow so how did saddam get around at that point was it all vehicles everybody started hating him everybody started well, look what is stupid what he did for yeah. the country look what he did people like i don't know was before like power to see like you have everything why you go to the kuwait yeah and so stupid, was, like was it kind of the tipping point then for where people really started to stand up to him and, and he wasn't able to to rule and and be be the dictator that he was 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 he not as powerful after that because of it? Just a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Start less powerful. Yeah. Start because the people they talking. When are you gonna kill hold the hold the country? Yeah. The power and numbers yeah. thing started. Whatever, like you know, start uh, teach, like you know, try to uh, approach that his chair. No, that one to kill him. Yeah. But sometimes people they start talking. Yeah. Bad things about him. Yeah. They ignore them just yeah. like yeah. And uh, I mean, so you weren't flying him around. Was he just driving around the country at yes, that point? Yeah, not flying. No yeah. more flying. Yeah. Uh, economically, I can only assume that in that seven-year period, it was it was pretty devastating. Uh, yeah. It was the country was pretty broke, and you know, power off, water off. Did were there times where you weren't paid? Uh, I would like to take salary, like salary. You know, my salary not even was. I can't buy with my salary. Maybe. Two dozen of eggs. Really? Yes, that's how. how it so is. how are how are you getting by? Whatever I have. Yeah. Left. Did you do extra extra jobs? Any? Wasn't gonna job. All all of them they broke. So yeah. Who's gonna pay broke. that one? Yeah. yeah. Wow. They uh, but uh, like Iraqi uh, minister of uh, commerce, he was do a program like uh, like like food stamp they mm. call it, or something like that. So they they give us like food, yeah. But still, like <coughs> like uh, behind everything, whatever I have left, I try use it like, and like everything like in schedule, like everything in yeah. Yeah, sure. Did, did yeah. you have kids at that time? Yes. Yeah. Uh, did you have them when the the first when the American Gulf War kicked off? Did you have children? I have two of them at that time. Yeah, I have the oldest one, Rania, and Rent. Yeah. Um, but uh, my other two kids, no, they never yeah. born yet. Uh, prior to the Kuwait invasion, um, reading that there, there, like you were pretty well taken care of, right? Like he would, you would fly him, and he would give you like a th- uh, the equivalent to like three thousand dollar tip. Yeah. Uh, were there any other instances of like crazy bags of cash or boxes of gold or, or anything weird that, that you saw with him flying around that you're like, holy shit, uh, or, or any like really extravagant gifts or things that took place either with you or with any of the other pilots? No, like didn't Not really. anything. But I, I guess for, for the flights though, he made sure that you guys were always taken, taken good care of and, and tipped you pretty handsomely. Yes. Yeah. That's all. 
And particularly after the incident with Saddam and the Prime Minister of Israel, he gave him triple his yearly salary really? for that single flight. More than a triple. More than triple, okay. In cash or? Cash, yeah. Iraqi yes. cash or yeah, Iraqi cash, yeah. So when there were some of these, you know, maybe ones that you shouldn't talk about, it's yeah. the pat on the back, did you see anything, but then very quickly was given, you know, some very serious compensation. Yeah. Yeah, five times of my salary. Five times five the salary, times. just in that single incident. Yeah. I found that to be quite interesting. So the big question is, is did you tell your wife he gave you that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you did. Let her yeah. go shopping. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was yeah. just a normal day at the office. Yeah. Honey. Yeah. Yeah. It ends up in a sock. And one more thing I will add on this in this transition period that he's talking about. When he made the transition off the VIP squad, this was primarily due to the fact that his in-laws were living in the United States and they believed them to be informants. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that's why he had to exit. This was forcibly done. Yeah. And simply just because you have in-laws that decided to live in the United States, like that's how serious it was. He lost his job over it. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, all right, so I guess moving forward, um, so now basically the country is in dire straits. People are starting to kind of turn on him. Between 98 and 2003, did it just continue to get worse and worse until yes. America yes. came? So, Very bad. Yeah. And what, for you personally, what, what transpired between 1998 and 2003? What happened with you? Yeah, actually, I get like open market there like uh, I used to like do uh, they call it appliances mm. yeah I sell appliances like Samsung TVs but you're, you're still technically on active duty on active duty yeah, but you're doing moonlighting doing other yeah things. three yeah. dozen of eggs at my salary yeah. it's still wow. like, yeah Man. <laughs> um, so I, I what was your uh, and he knows about the situation I didn't know anything he didn't do anything. Yeah, they, yeah, at that time they start people. I know they they start stealing. They start do start crime crime at that time. Yeah, because they don't have enough. Just money. despair. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so I, I can only imagine that when the United States uh, kicked off the the Iraqi invasion, that it, that was pretty welcomed by most. Yes. Um, for you at, at that point was there uh was there a build-up to it did you guys anticipate it did you were, was there kind of a uh rumblings within the within the country between you know the the population did you guys think that that was going to happen were you expecting it did you talk about it most of them they didn't know happen but i used to have satellite so i watched the news everything yeah update i know where they, where they came they came from really start now reaching Kut, reaching Hajmir, reaching Baghdad, the inter Baghdad International Airport. I, I saw them like, you know, yeah. on the TV. But and I mean, I even prior to that, did you, like, let's say late 2002, because mm -hmm. uh, I mean, just it's, it's kind of mind blowing for me to, to sit here and, and be able to interview you being on the other side that, that you know, from my perspective coming in, I, I would have considered you an, an enemy. You know, just, just being honest, you, you know, uh, whereas you didn't really most consider me the, that. Most of the Iraqi people, they are more welcome yeah. just to get them saved from this person. Yeah. Have you, um, this is get probably. Get them away from this person. Get, like, just, yeah. let's, let this person goes away. Like, yeah. you know. <laughs> it, it reminds me, uh, I, I, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. It's, it's going to lose you if you haven't. There's a, there's a space movie called Arrival. I don't know if you've, if you've seen that, where. 
these aliens come down oh, and yeah. there's 12, uh, 12 pods and they're trying to communicate, communicate with human beings and all of the humans assume that they're there to, to take them over and kill them and whatever. And they're not. And it takes, you know, for uh, forever for them to figure that out. That That's kind of how I feel right now. <laughs> is it like, you know, because, you know, from from my perspective, you know, we we deployed in in uh, August of 2002 and, and built up, got ready in, in Guam and got all of our stuff ready, went to went to Kuwait, were there for about two months and then ultimately drove into Iraq to Nazaria to Baghdad to Crete, took Saddam's hometown palace and to Crete down um, my perspective of looking at all of that versus how you viewed it is just vastly different and it's fascinating to me. Um, and if you'd have told me back then that I'd be sitting here 20 years <laughs> later, I'd have, I'd have choked myself. Yeah. Uh, you know. yeah, actually at the beginning when the Americans took over Iraq, like they invade Iraq, so, uh, so that was at that time, uh, most of the people happy, but the situation is still the same. Mm-hmm. So they didn't do anything like you know at the beginning. Yeah. After why they start then because they leave the situation as is. Yeah. Yeah. So the people they start getting crazy about that. Uh, they uh, start. Uh, they start. Oh, they didn't do anything. Just they took Saddam. They took that one. They didn't build a country. They didn't give us like uh, water. Like fixing everything. Like look, everything is damaged. So they start realize okay, the situation is going to be like. As is yeah. now, so they start doing fighting. something fighting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the uh, I guess from again from kind of looking at the timeline that I had going into it. Did did you guys as a society think in at you know towards the end of two thousand two, early oh three, before it happened? Did you anticipate America coming and doing what they were going to do, or was it a, a total surprise? No, total surprise. Total surprise. Like, yeah. Uh, so once, okay. but we hope at that time, like many yeah. people, that oh, just let them come. Yeah, let's just get rid of this person. Yeah. Did you did you guys know? I guess you being an active military service member in January, February of two thousand three, did you know that there was a big American troop buildup in Kuwait? Say again, please. So um, in say December of two thousand two, December okay, January of two thousand three. Mm-hmm. February of 2000. Yeah, yeah. Did you yeah. know that there was yeah. there was a ton yeah, of milk? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. that wasn't a surprise. And he knows very well. Yeah, yeah they know. But you guys knew that too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, but he's he's like it's just like in the TV, like tell the army, Iraqi army, get out of the Kuwait, heading to Basra. Yeah. Just like they they show us like couple vehicles, like mm-hmm. you know, just moved, but actually still there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So from the time that uh, in you know March of 2003, how long did it take of us being there and doing what we did before you felt like the Iraqi population started to kind of turn on, on America as far as them not taking better care of, of the infrastructure and the people to where now they, they weren't really so welcoming and they were pissed? Was it a few months? Was it a year, six months? Was it several years? Or was it, was it gradual? Like, uh, I didn't get it exactly. So, um, when, when we first showed up, you guys okay. were welcoming. Yes. How long before you, you weren't welcoming anymore? Did you realize America mm. wasn't doing after After like maybe a year and a half. Oh, a year and a half. Wow. A year and a half, yeah. yeah. Start like, you know, until like you find Al-Qaeda, mm-hmm. they start their uh, other organization, like they came over there, 
to fight Al-Zarqawi. Many, many, many people, they yeah. start there. Yeah. yeah. So for you, kind of the same question. Once, once America came into Iraq, what was your direction at that point? <laughs> Most welcome with yeah. them. But yeah. I mean, did your did your bosses, did your superiors say, "Do this, do that"? Did they give you any direction? No, it was no, just no. Like, it was very friendly. No, just a free for all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so actually, I joined the Iraqi Air Force. One of my friends had told me, "Okay, they're gonna start build up Iraqi Air Force, new Iraqi Air Force." So I joined the Iraqi Air Force yeah. in two thousand end two thousand four on the November. Yeah. So from from two. So I work with the American already. Yeah. So from March of '03 to November of '04, you were just kind of in limbo. And nothing. Yeah. Nothing. I'm just assuming you nothing. weren't getting paid, even though it's three dozen eggs worth. But like. Yeah, but start the like I pick up many things. Like I start people they stealing many banks. Yeah. So they uh, have money. They start shopping TV. They start shopping everything. Yeah. So it's a good time to make money at that. Yeah. Time. So you were doing okay then? Yeah. Really? Okay, yeah, at that time. So because you were, many people, they still... Yeah. So you're making, yeah. you're making more money in that? that oh, a lot, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Capitalism, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. America's good for... for yeah, that time. Uh, but interestingly, his wife and children, during all this time, for safety purposes, they moved to the United States. So he was yeah, without them several years, unfortunately. What, what year did It was a hard call to make. more than two. I was in four. Oh, okay. And, and young children, too, I'm thinking of mine, to yeah. just say goodbye what, um, it's, it's a tough one, and, and I, I even felt his emotion when we're writing that yeah. chapter of the book. He's hugging his kids. He's smelling their, their smell uh, and knowing, uh, like, I just need you to stay alive. I just uh, need you to have a childhood, even yeah. if it means I'm not in it. Yeah. That is a really unthinkable one. That's I mean, for I mean, you have children. I have children. We all have kids here. To say goodbye for the sake of your child's safety is a hard one, but, I mean, he's a good parent. and. Yeah. And their time in the United States, we didn't have Google Translate then. His daughters are opening a dictionary and word for word copying their homework assignments, every word from a dictionary. Are they crying at the wow. same time? They're crying. <laughs> wow. That's wow. how they did it. And, and these women and, and his son, too, I mean, they're top medical professionals. They're incredibly successful. They have made wow. it. But this time that his family went through, I'm just, you know, adding a little humanity to this story here is, you know, for his wife and children, it was, it was tough. It was uh, really tough. How old were they when, when they came? When they came here, the oldest one, she's, she was like 17. 17. Yeah. And so in, two, in 2017 two. and 15, my son was 11. Imagine in high school, and, word yeah, for okay. word, translating yeah. from and a dictionary. Young, yeah. Youngest one, like Rola, my daughter, was four years. So they, they knew no English. No English at all. Did you know English at that we point? We learned English actually, but we didn't practice it. Like yeah. we know like this is chair, table, window, those yeah. like words, okay, but we can not conversation. Put them like yeah, conversation or put yeah. them together. They teach us, but yeah. we didn't practice it. Sure. So it's very hard to them. <coughs> but I uh, thanks God like they made it. I have Where did they move first? First they came to Michigan. To Michigan. Yeah, by her uh, house and how how did that process take place like when you made the decision you guys need to go to america i mean did you apply uh, for visas she, and all she, that like her parents applied a uh, paper for uh, my wife and my children in 2000 okay before that situation and it came after uh, they call it uh, family reunion something like that mm. okay so it came all the papers came to Jordan actually in 2004. So they left. 
So did they have to, to travel to Jordan? To, to Jordan, then from Jordan to uh, later yeah. to the United States. And at that time, uh, did the Iraqi government under Saddam not have checkpoints trying nothing, to keep people? Nothing, from, nothing, nothing. Uh, 2004, it's nothing. There. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, why didn't you leave? Actually, because they start, I start work with the American, actually. Mm-hmm. Because I want to build up my country. They said to build up your country with the new Iraqi Air Force. So I want to build up my country as yeah. I'm a pilot. I love my country. I love my job. So they said, okay, we're going to build up new Iraqi Air Force. I joined. How, how was that different? Was it way different now um, than, than before, now that America was helping? Yes, it's help, very helpful. Yeah. Very Aircraft? Helpful. C-130, I was yeah. lucky at that one. So I joined the Iraqi Air Force again. They sent me training course to Jordan or five months after that to Little Rock Air Base for some later. Little Rock? Flight. Yeah. Little really? Rock, yeah. Did your family come see you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, my son come over, yeah. actually. But I tell uh, Mr. Major Roger, like I tell him I have my wife there and kids. I didn't see him a long time ago, since uh, more than a year. So yeah. if you can give me like permission to visit them. So they, are, they, they do time for me. They give me uh, two weeks to visit them. So I visit them, but I stay for yeah. three months. <laughs> <laughs> I never came back. Yeah. Then I, they start asking about me, like, so yeah. I went back to Iraq again. Yeah. Did you get in trouble? No. No, not really. American friendly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no beatings when you got No, there. no, nothing. No Saddam-style repercussions. Then after that, start, like, you know, threatening me, like, uh, I think, I don't think you read that chapter or not yet. But I, I remember seeing yeah. a... Uh, a vignette, a snippet of talking about yeah. death threats on your door. Yeah. Can, yeah. You, can you talk Even, about that? Yeah, actually, that was in 2006. So they sent me, uh, they call it thread letters, two times to leave the American. And this is from Al Qaeda? From one of them from Al Qaeda, the other one from Al Jihad, or Tawheed, they call it. And third one, death certificate from Al Qaeda. What, uh, I mean, did they, do you have them still? I, my lawyer has it. Like has yeah, it. When I came here, apply for that one. I bring those copies, actually. I give it to my lawyers. Is there any way to get uh, an image of that that we that could put into well, YouTube? Yes. Let's do it. Yeah. Yes. I yeah? think, I, did I send it to you? No. no. I have that would be really cool I to put it. into the YouTube I have it. Version. Yeah, okay. I have it. Yeah, yeah, if we could do that, that would be yeah. awesome. Um, what but the original one, my lawyer have it, that yeah. main one. What, uh, so what did it say? The, uh, don't help the American, otherwise kill you. And I mean, is it written in a way where, like, are they swearing, or is it formal, or is it is no, it just handwritten? Or just what? like no, no, it's type it. Typed. Type. Yeah. So I, I didn't like this. I went actually first time to my head Iraqi headquarters. I tell them that's what happened. They told they tell me we can't do anything for you. Then I went to America, and they said also we can't do anything for you. Just take care about yourself. Second time, the same. Also, I went in. But after they sent me death certificate, I mean, serious, they are serious. Yeah. So also, I tell them, sorry, we can't do. <laughs> you have like a, a thousands like you. Yeah. You can't put like a patrol or like yeah. old checkpoint you're going to do for a <coughs> house. Uh, yeah, like a hundred, yeah. thousand checkpoint. Yeah. Was, was there any way for you to verify that it was actually from them and not somebody just fucking with you or yeah huh. 
then after that, they said from Al-Qaeda, the last one from Al-Qaeda. Because I mean, it doesn't just say from Al-Qaeda, right? <laughs> or how, like, how did you know? Love Al-Qaeda. Yeah, yeah, like yeah what, the, that's, that's one from... Or is it on leather, letterhead? I yeah. mean, what? Like, they don't have letterhead, do they? I mean, or, or do they? Fuck, I don't know. Uh, anyway, so I was like, I didn't take it like... I took it seriously, but yeah. I don't scare, like, you know. But I thought, okay, how do they know? I, like, I didn't take it, like, very, very seriously. But I still was scaring from sure. the situation. So until... They send me a death certificate. No, I told this is like, there's no joke. Yeah. So I take it to the head of my headquarters. They, do, they didn't do anything. And Americans, they tell me, we can't do anything. Then after that, they attack my house. Wow. Yeah, but, but thanks God, I was at that time, no power outages, like everything, like no power, nothing. So I, I was uh, just across the street to get some ice from uh, my neighbor. So to get drink, to make a drink for me. So, and his wife told me, oh, Muhammad, come, come inside with my husband. Let's drink together. Okay, I'm going to do some dinner for you guys. Then, no, no. She grabbed my hand and put it, get me inside the house. I was by myself because my kids and my wife, my wife and kids in the United States. So not even... We just start drink like in ten minutes. I mean, twenty minutes, half hour, not even that time. I hear ton of bullets to my house, just across the street. So I walk, look for the wind from the window. It was two cars from uh, they called Ministry uh, Ministry of Interior. For that one belonged those because to pick up a truck. They called for police. So jump in my house. The tons of bullets like on my house shooting and they jump again and they left. But at that time I realized it's not better those people. Those people is belong, they call it, uh, I mean, not Al-Qaeda, sorry. Those people belong a better organization because it was uh, at that time Ministry of Interior it's run by better organization which is by belong the Iranian intelligence those they call it assassination that one so the the vehicles were were marked yeah as yeah white and blue you know i think if you serve an iraqi kind of police yeah so like they stole those vehicles and no it's like like actual then actual yeah so that mean that mean they those people is not al-qaeda they put name of al-qaeda because they don't get involved yeah but the organization didn't get involved for killing yeah Wow. So they support Qaeda, but actually it's not Al-Qaeda. Yeah. So, so at that time, actually, better organization, it's belonged Ira- I mean, Iranian intelligence. So they start killing all the pilots, Sunni pilots, or Sunni high level was before, like high ranks, uh, high position, uh, even the doctors, whatever they have, those people like professors, those Sunni especially. From from your perspective at that time in the country, was there a good understanding um, from from where you were at that Iran was playing a big role in fighting Americans? And it seems like there was kind of a power struggle of remnants from Saddam's loyal, you know, Ba'ath Party guys, Fedayeen guys, Uday and Kuse's crew of 
uh, of you know mobsters, if you will. Then Al Qaeda had a had a presence and became bigger and bigger. But then Iran had a big presence. Then you had uh, you know like in in Baghdad in particular. Um, I'm trying to think of the uh, the guy's name. It, it uh, escapes my memory right now. There was a a, a, a leader um, in part of Baghdad. I can't remember if I can think of his name. I'll I'll bring it back up, but. There were a lot of different factions that were all kind of fighting for power, and but you know, kind of universally united against America. Did you have that same understanding um, that that all of that was going on at that time? Between the, that, that Al Qaeda was there, that Saddam's former guys were there, that Iran was there, and and they were all kind of fighting against America. Yeah, actually, because you know the the main things in America that like. A, big mistake when they released the Iraqi army. Mm-hmm. They tell them, okay, retired everything. That, so in this situation, there's no army to protect the border or protect the cities or the country. So became those militia start come take over. And all those organizations like Badr or uh, Da'wah, whatever those, they start build up themselves and start fighting American over there. Yeah. Was it easy for you to identify just by... No. It's very hard. So you you wouldn't know if it was Iranian or Al-Qaeda? No, no, no. no. Even a checkpoint, checkpoint, when they start, okay, give give me your ID. I don't know this belongs who. Those Al-Qaeda, even they wearing like uniform, army uniform, but you didn't know maybe it's not right, real. Yeah, so I, I give him my, my ID, like, so I tell him, okay, I give him my ID, I have, I have to give him my ID, either 50%, either kill or pass. Yeah. You never know. That's kind of a, that's a, yes. di- bit <laughs> like, of a dice roll. It's gambling. <laughs> yeah. Gambling, yeah. It's a pretty heavy gamble. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I guess, I mean, like here in America. So, but uh, at one point, actually, I was, I want to mention it, actually. My wife, Christian, so I used to drive her car. So she has a cross. Oh, man. Yeah, so... She's got a fish on the, yeah, on the trunk. Yeah, so it was a small, like this size. Yeah. Again, another one is big. So because that at that time, the Christian, those innocent people, like, they didn't have any problems. Really? So they let them go. Yeah. That's surprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even Saddam what, was. What, Saddam, even all, like, security around is, like, uh, they cooking, they cleaning, uh, like, the houses, very close, most all of them. Christian. Really? Yeah. I, I he loves him. I would have never, yeah. never thought that. So I make the cross, it's bigger. Yeah. So when it came to the <laughs> checkpoint. Yeah. You'd be like, oh, you're fine. Honk if you love Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They tell him, okay, go, go. Jesus, take the, <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> yeah. Come, come, yeah, hold go. So speaking of, uh, of morning routine and really throughout the day, you know, health and fitness and overall well-being is something that uh, I focus on as I get older, I get more and more kind of in tune with what works and what doesn't. Um, <clears throat> and I recently started working with uh, Ketone IQ, which is hvmn.com. Uh, um, this product is uh, is a really, really good way to start the day, uh, as well as basically just anytime you need uh, a boost from an energy standpoint, uh, you're getting ready to do something physically demanding, mentally demanding. Uh, you know, before I record, I take a shot. First thing in the morning I do before workouts uh, to recover after workouts. Um, you know, I, I take it multiple times a day. Um, and it's, I mean, there's no sugar, it's vegan, there's no caffeine, there's no salt, gluten, 
no artificial flavors or sweeteners, uh, and it, it works from a, a ketogenic standpoint, uh, giving your brain and body the fuel uh, that it needs to do tasking um, uh, tasks. So, you know, it, it's a phenomenal product, uh, an amazing company. That's HVMN.com, and the code is mic drop, all one word, all caps, for 20% off. Uh, I can't recommend this product enough for, um, again, getting going in the morning, uh, pre-workout, post-workout, uh, you're tired in the afternoon. Uh, it's a, a super healthy way to feed your brain and your body from that uh, kind of glycogen replenishment standpoint that, uh, that tends to crash a lot of people when they're using caffeine products or carb products, et cetera. So uh, I love this stuff. Uh, I use it uh, several times throughout the day. Uh, and I encourage you guys to, to check it out as well. It's uh, hvmn.com, and that code is MICDROP for 20% off, all caps, all one word. Because um, I, I, I guess thinking of it from the United States, like here here in Texas, if somebody is from California or Boston or the Midwest, within 10 seconds of talking with them, you'll know you're not from here. Like you can tell by the way they from talk, the, the way they dress. You know, I, I guess I'm curious that that wasn't really that prevalent there. Like you'd know this this person's from Iran or or not from from Iraq. Like you wouldn't get that from them kind of right away. They were good at, that good at blending in. You can you can like judge it for that one. Yeah. Even like idea, give me idea. Yeah. Yeah. Like you just even Iraqi Iraqi, but even many Iraqi like belong Iran's. Oh, okay. Yeah, even Iranian, they speak Iraqi fluent. Oh, okay. You so you tell. know, yeah. you can tell. Even Al-Qaeda. Yeah. So a after the third death threat where they give you the death certificate, uh, what, what did you do after that, after they still said, no, we're not going to help you? I went to the, my house. I'm going to take care about myself now. So two days later, they start shooting. They what, shoot my house. And what, what happened after that, I guess? Ah, after that... I went to the house, I take my passport, went to my dad's house. I tell him that's what happened. And I went to, again, to uh, Iraqi uh, headquarters. I tell them, we can't do anything. So and then I went to the uh, American. There, so my friend, one of the, my friend, he told me, so why are you staying here? He can afford Iraq, so you have just go, your family there. He, he, that's, he, that's person, like, he gave me that permission to stay a couple weeks to visit my, my family, the same person. Wow. Yeah, he told me, look, if a visa is still valid, yeah. go leave the country. So, so you left? I left. How, how did you get out? Oh, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's how much time do we have? That's another story. Yeah. Actually, I left uh, Baghdad. I won't uh, get, uh, like, GMC, car mm -hmm. they call GMC, that one between Baghdad and, and Jordan <coughs> with my friend. Both of us, and I'm heading to Jordan. From Jordan, I'm going to fly to United States. <coughs> after, like, you know, Kelomiositin, like, after Habani, after Ramadi, actually, 80 kilometers after Ramadi, they have an area, they call it K160. So... Before to get that one, but they said he put gas in, in, uh, in Romadi. Before Romadi, Khaldia, they call it. He put Romadi in gas. But they tell us, be careful. There is like Chevy, Chevy Impala, like uh, silver one. Those uh, people, they stealing the money. They pull you over, they take the money from you. 
just be careful. Okay. Before came 160. Okay, look behind. That's the car there. That's the car the person tell us about it. A Chevy Silver. And pe one person drive that one, but the other people, they're hiding. So when they come to you before, like a beam, they jump, like, you know, with the machine guns, they totally pull over. They take money, they take gold. Because, you know, when you travel, we don't have, like, those uh, credit cards at that time. So you yeah. carry cash. You go there like you're wearing only your gold, whatever. Though. So you take it with you. You're not going to leave it home. I told the driver <coughs> and my friend, is it that car the person said about it? Tell us about it. He said, yes, this one. Silver, Chevy. So, <laughs> so I tell him, okay, get more power. Hit the gas, <laughs> hit the gas. <laughs> and my friend, he tell him, no, pull over. Let them take some money. We put, at that time, what I did, I put some money top of them, my bag. So when he opened it, you see the money here, you're going to take it around. Right? But other money, and the gold is like, I hide it. Did you have a fair bit saved up? What do you mean? Did you have a lot of money saved up? No, I took with me about, uh, was at that time, maybe six, seven grand. Yeah. Yeah, that one. So I, took, I put like 1,200 at the top and let them take it before they kill me or like, you know, yeah. just because they are in a hurry. You just want to give it a go. Yeah. Not going to check everything. I told him, hit this gas. And my friend told him, pull over. He's going, no, you don't want to get it. I told him, hit, hit the gas. And the person, he said, like this. Person, I mean, pull over. Mm -hmm. So hit the gas, that one. And then he start, lose us. Like, you know, he start like, we're going fast. Yeah. You're getting lower, Losing slower. It. So away. At K160, he pull over to take some gas. Boom. The cars next to us, the same car. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> so he, he get up from his car, he came to us. We are just like panic. What do you want? Now it's like almost city, like small village, like no city. It's like, guys, how much speed are you driving? He tell the, the driver. I told, I look for your Rear tires. Doing like this. <laughs> He's trying to tell you your rear tire was fucked like up. this. So yeah. that mean we you think oh, pull that's over. Awesome. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. You guys are shitting your pants. <laughs> yes. oh, that's awesome. Well, I mean, you're lucky that the <laughs> wheel didn't fall yeah. off. Yeah. Then after came in 160, I think I mentioned that in a book or not. Mm -mm. Really? We didn't tell that one. Okay. So you after have a mic drop exclusive yeah. here. Yeah. Awesome. So <laughs> after that, after that, they do check after left K160 about 25 kilometers. And we saw checkpoint that's real. They're stealing money. Checkpoints, many cars, they stop. They take money, whatever those. Like by gunpoint? Yes, yeah. checkpoint. So we can yeah. do it. If you, if you turn around, they follow you. That means you carry a lot of cash. Did you have a gun on you? No, no, no. They gun us. Like they have yeah. a machine gun, everything. Yeah. So, okay, I tell them, okay, let's take the money. Let them take the money. That's 1200 I put in the top, around 1200 I don't remember exactly, but I want 1200 At this point, like, not even five cars away from them, two helicopters, they came, American, like Black Hawk, they disappeared, those people. Oh, wow. They, they wait, like, I mean, the roads open again. Yeah. 
But I stuck on the border, uh, that one. Yeah. It's that's 16 hours, 16, yeah, yeah. yeah. That one. That's yeah. a 16-hour drive. No, no, yeah. he yeah, was stuck at the border find, 16 hours after They find this. my b- luggage in yeah. my bag. They find, uh, they find my... I used to train, uh, I get training course in, in uh, Jordan. Yeah. The, uh, like the primary training course in Jordan. Uh, so uh, they give me idea, Jordan Air Force. Yeah. So I keep it, that one. And they find another idea. Those Jordanian border yeah they find uh, my my passport read iraqi airways then i have idea from jordan air force i have Ira- Too another many IDs. ids i have another ids from uh, iraqi air force another idea from dod department of defense united states so they're they looking at you like, who is who this the fuck guy is this yeah. yeah and they tell us who you are yeah. come inside. next jason born right yeah here. from room to room they escort me until i stuck there so they don't release me. Tell me who you are. And then I make a phone call uh, to my, uh, my father friend. He was, in, uh, he was like a Jordanian Air Force leader and his dad had uh, a brother. He, was, uh, num- he controlled the security in the whole country on Jordan. Oh, okay. So I call him. I tell him uh, that's what happened to me. Don't give me one of them. So he talked to him. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So immediately, after I hang up the phone, immediately the situation, 180 degrees different. Yeah. Yeah. Start now, they call me, sir. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where's your stuff? So, yeah. But they steal many CDs. Like I have many pictures of the oh, really? training course in the United States. I have a lot. So they... I don't know why they probably they make copy and they left it there. Anyway, so this I mean the tone is completely different now. So I left the border direct to Amman. At uh, the same time, like I tell my the driver, okay, would you please go to to the like whatever those offices for flying, Alia Airlines. Tell me, okay, I went there. They told me what we have today to Michigan tonight. <coughs> you want to? I have a seat for you. So, okay, go ahead, please. So, I, I take a ticket, flight ticket from them. Then he dropped me to the airport early. <laughs> About 12 hours before <laughs> takeoff. <laughs> so, just I want to stay there. I want to yeah. stay in the safe area. Yeah. Until I came here. Yeah. And that was in 2006. What uh, I would love to get your description of what it was like landing in Michigan and reuniting with your family. Actually, three times I came. I came for one, one time in 2005, in July 2005, for visit that one official visit that one from United. Uh, I mean, U.S. Air Force. But I mean, w- once you actually moved here and you knew you were staying, what was that like? It's a new country, new culture, a new different everything but still like you know we watching movies and nothing Relief. like yeah it's nothing like uh, big big change like yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm different like i'm a travel a lot yeah so i saw many uh, many countries uh, many uh, what they call it uh, cultures sure yeah was it um i mean obviously it's but at the beginning like you know it's it's kind of struggling hard, but it's not hard, hard. Yeah. yeah. 
What um, f- financially uh, was your wife working here, or how? yes, she used to work alteration in uh, one of the uh, alterations center. They call it laundry or alteration. That yeah. one. Then after that, she worked at uh, North Rum, also alteration. Uh, my kids, uh, my son Rami, he was like eleven years old, twelve years old. He was working with one of. Uh, my wife's uh, parents cousin like he has a gas station he worked just a couple hours like there yeah cleaning uh, like you know stacking stuff they give him like like yeah. Bit, yeah. were there any benefits from the u.s government for you guys no Nothing? because they <coughs> came here as a they call it a family re- reunion that one so we didn't have any benefits yeah. at that time i have to send him a money yeah yeah yeah, from like every month, every two months, whatever I, yeah. I get, I send them somewhere. What was the first uh, thing that you did job-wise once you moved here? First, thing, uh, my brother-in-law, he told me like uh, he worked at the hotels. They do renovations at the hotel. He told me, I think, I told, okay, go ahead. I start with there. Could yeah. you be a pilot here? Uh, I apply. Yeah. apply for that one. I apply to be a pilot. But the problem... Uh, I don't have green cards. I just have work authority. Really? Yeah, at that time. And uh, I don't have gr- uh, even citizen. So after after that, I get, they give me actually, I apply for to be a pilot. For, I apply my paper to FAA, everything perfect. Okay, they give me the license. They give me the license. Then if I find out it's misspelling with my last name, and instead of, of Suleiman, they write it Salman. So that I'm indifferent. So they take it away from me. Wow. Yeah, so <clears throat> after I corrected, five years take me to correct it. Then I apply again. I apply again. Oh, just work authority. should be like a green card. Because we have like Mexico and Canada, that's mean domestic flights. So at least we have a green card. I don't have that one at the time. Until I get a green card, I start to do it again. Now, uh, my new passport, they sent it to me from Iraq. Actually, I fixed because my old passport, uh, Mohammed Adil Suleiman's last name. Now, they actually, there's a big problem. Most of the Iraqi happened to them. Because here in the United States, the last name is like whatever, like last name. But we don't use it last name, actually. Use my last name, it's my grandpa. So Suleiman is my grandpa, but originally my last name is Arawi. So the new one, they put Arawi. So the old one, which is I get a visa here when I came here, Suleiman. So when I apply again, they do background check and TSA, they call it. They told this is a different one. Again, it takes me five years to just to correct my my last name. And and I think the road to citizenship was what, 19, 19 years? Before you got citizenship, was 19 years? No, uh, yes. but Full n- citizen? No, passport? I, I, I have a uh, year and a half to get the American citizen. Still a year and a half to go, and it'll yeah. be, what, 20 years? Yeah. Wow. 20, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I get mean, my green card about three and a half years ago. But, uh, I mean, at this point, age-wise, they won't hire you at a certain age, right, to be a pilot? But, yeah, you can, I think, up to 67. Okay. You can retire. But start work after, after that, I start work with the... U.S. Army. Really? Yeah, I work as a like uh, advisor, 
like oh, cultural advisor or training, you know, those like Mobias and other other companies, ThreatTech. I mean, so that's a, a better fit for you anyway, probably, right? Yes. Uh, so I go all over the countries, like, you know, from different states. Yeah. I stay even more money, more yeah. benefits, uh, yeah. more respect. Uh, yeah. It's my field. Like, yeah. uh, it's different. Yeah. I love it. B- a bigger impact, too. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, your family is still over in Iraq. My father, father. and uh, have a brother there and uh, three sisters. How how difficult was it? I mean, seeing, because you came over here in, in 2006? 2006, yeah. You know, seeing the rise of ISIS, especially in Mosul, um, were, were there a lot of close calls with your with your father and, and other family members when ISIS was kind of moving through and doing all the things that they My did? father is actually in Baghdad. They live in Baghdad. Okay. But in Mosul, I have cousin in Mosul get killed. Yeah. One of the 18 years old. Wow. Because he wearing a T-shirt, uh, they write USA, but he didn't pay attention for that. So yeah. Yeah. They killed him. For killed him, him, yeah. Wow. He was 18 years old. Jeez. Yeah. Um, He's the first college in, uh, in medical college. That's terrible. Yeah. Um, any close calls with your father? Uh, yeah, like uh, every other day, every three days. I really? Him, yeah. I mean, were there any, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, a clo- a call? I mean, phone were, call? were there any uh, dangerous situations? No, no, no. I thought like make calls. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> was the, the language thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he, he wasn't super worried. You weren't worried when ISIS was rolling through and doing what they were doing. Were you worried about him? My father is old now. Was it yeah. 85, 86? So, but... But you know, many times when he said something gonna happen, something gonna do this and this, something gonna happen, this and this, exactly it happened. Yeah, yeah. You still talk to him often. Yes. Yeah. yes. Is his health okay? Yeah, he's sick, but still like, yeah. it's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Every other day I call him. Every three days. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, and sounds like your kids moved here, learned English, and and now they're just crushing it, right? Yeah. Tell me about your <coughs> kids. Yeah, my kids when they as. Lauren said, like, it's very hard to them at that time. They put, we don't have Google at that time, so they have used dictionary, but they they made it. Yeah. yeah I have my oldest daughter, she get PA. Actually, first time I, she get, uh, they got medical uh, lab, something about lab, and she don't like it, she will finish PA. Yeah. And second daughter, she got a doctor degree, like, she get PhD degree in infection disease. And she's living in Indiana now with her husband. He's American. Wow. Yeah. And uh, my son, uh, he finished um, electric engineering wow, two years crazy. ago in New York with the BAE system, Br- yeah. British Aerospace yeah. Engineering System. Wow. Yeah. He built a tank. So, like, he, <laughs> he loves, even he got a driver license for tanks. Yeah. Because he'd go for tests, whatever, like that yeah. one. Yeah. He loves his job. Yeah. And uh, my youngest daughter get. Uh, that one, the youngest one, she's American completely because she came here four years. So very fast, pick up all the yeah. language and yeah. that one. So uh, she get uh, something with the medical health, but she doesn't like it. So she have two more years to finish her law school. Yeah. Does she live, uh, where does she live? With her mom, like in uh, West Bloomfield. Yeah. Yeah, so she's going to finish her law school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what's what's next for you? Just continuing doing what you're doing? Exactly. Yeah. Um, next, I'm going to try to fix the name again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To get my license back yeah. again. Yeah. 
Oh, I, I can imagine. Especially after this book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, now it's on the book, so it's got to be yeah. right. Uh, and all these camps. Yeah. Lauren. Yeah. Because <laughs> Lauren. <laughs> and, and speaking of which, uh, yeah. from your perspective of what we've covered thus far, um, does anything stand out as, uh, you know, from your, because you've had countless conversations with them, uh, and I want to be respectful of, of the book, uh, but also, you know, you have a very unique and, and a singular perspective in terms of growing up here, interviewing him, getting to know him, you know, having written the book and, and now hearing the interview, uh, what, what is your uh, take on it and, and, uh, kind of your thoughts on, on the entire process of interviewing him and, and if we've left anything out that, that yeah. we're talking about. So I would say that, uh, you know, just to sit here and see this conversation take place is so unique, you know, because, and this is what drew me originally to the story, is to see this different perspective, see a peek behind the curtain. And he individually, as a man, it this is so remarkable to get to know him too, because he is one of the most confident people I have ever had the pleasure of working with nothing even as i'm asking him stories how what are you thinking feeling he's gone through so much but he has a mindset about life which is just one step forward keep it going you know he's he sees the sense of humor and everything he sees life in a certain way that i think is quite refreshing i think it's always a matter of perspective you can get up close and you, we see our own country and this is happening and this is happening and it's easy to feel like you know negative this guy sees the positive in just about everything. Yeah. Uh, more than anything, just to see the humanity of the the story from a different side. We see the American men and women that served there, but to know of the families and what they were going through, it's really tough trying yeah. to raise kids during that time, trying to provide well for your family during that time. I mean, it's a situation that we don't often see. And so from that perspective, it's been definitely one of my favorites to write. To be near his mindset about life is really remarkable. And so, and then to see this take place, I mean, you have your perspective of these events, he has his perspective. So just to listen to this conversation, this is my whole design and desire behind getting this book out there is so that the American people, maybe they won't have the, the, the luxury you and I do to actually sit on the couch with him, but maybe in some way as they go through the pages and they read it, they're going to feel that same sense, which is, I get to be up close. I get to see this in a personal way and, uh, you know, have their own conversation and, and, and get that, that other side perspective. I think it's valuable. Yeah. Really valuable. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, again, for me to, if you'd have told me I'd be sitting here, you know, now <laughs> I, that I, there's no way I would have believed you. Eh? Yeah. Uh, and it's just, for me, it's such an honor to be able to have you here and, and get to interview you and read your book. And, thank and you. uh, I, I just can't thank you enough. Did we leave anything out that uh, that's from the book? That, that I mean, there's always great stories, but I think maybe the reader, that can be part of the fun yeah. to go back through if you want to hear about monkeys making <laughs> over the intercom yeah. and parrots <laughs> flying yeah. a whole team of parrots so that you can't use your intercom system because they're repeating everything yeah. you say. <laughs> Yeah. And there's a drunk man yeah, having a fight with a parrot. You know that one. That one is still left fight in the there. Monkey, yeah. There's a fight with the monkey. That 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 for sure is uh, an interesting one. Of course, right after the invasion happened with Kuwait, there's some amazing details he has about actually landing in the airspace after all the looting took place. Um, so I, but it, I mean, that's for the reader. Yeah. That's for the reader to uh, flying yeah. into a sandstorm. We didn't get to that one. What it's like to fly headlong into a sandstorm under death threat yeah. with Saddam's brother. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some good ones, yeah. some juicy ones left, but yeah. I, you know, I'm sure for time's sake, we can let the reader yeah. buy the book. Yeah. 
I guess one one thing on his family. Uh, did you ever meet his sons? Who? Uh, Uday and Kuse. Yeah, a lot. A lot. Yeah, oh, a lot. he has a st- one of his yeah. friends' tongues cut off. Yeah. Could, yeah. Could, you, could you share that story? Just because one, one thing from from an American military standpoint, his, his sons were a big part of of our campaign there. You know, our our uh, you know, kind of mission set to find them uh, was a was a big part of of being there, and and especially at that time, it was kind of the height of when when things were the roughest for our troops there. Uh, so if if you could before we uh, kind of close it out, if you could share share the story with with his sons, that'd be great. Um, Oday he's like a, it's not normal person. Like he's like very hard to deal with him. He's a hot temple, um, crazy. I don't know. Like it's very like like limit like uh, with them. You have to take care about yourself when you fly. But actually. He just, I took him flying, like from Baghdad to Tikrit to Mosul, whatever. He get inside the aircraft, but he, he, he's normal, like, you know. I didn't go with him, like, deep. Nothing like yeah. that one. But he, he cut something. Your friends? Yeah, just from my friends, like, his name, Ali. He was, he's live now in, in UK. He live in the UK. He's, uh, he's best friend for the day. You know, that girls, parties, drinking together, like, so I don't know, somehow he talked something about Oday, like not bad, bad, but it's kind of bad. So he ordered his, uh, he, his uh, security, get him here, cut his, his tongue. Cut it off. Cut it, yeah. So he took it with the pliers. He said to my friend Ali, even though he showed it to me, like he, with the pliers, take it out, they cut first part. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Even have interview with him like in the TV, and he show it to the TV like you know his tongue is yeah. cut. Yeah. I mean, I remember you know knowing some of the guys that were uh, involved in the operation that ultimately ended up uh, killing both of his sons. What they found afterwards was very um, indicative of kind of their lifestyle. It was you know Viagra and porn and. Johnny yeah. Walker Blue Label. Like yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah, just, yeah, they just yeah. they had nothing but like extravagant yeah. party everything and and everything that we kind of heard and got from um, leading up until until that mission and then ultimately afterwards was that that they were just absolute bastards like his, like his two sons were worse than he was because they were exactly. entitled spoiled privileged shitheads that you know grew up as Saddam's sons and just did whatever they want and and uh, they were they were miserable wretches but. Fascinating stuff. I mean, uh, you know, there's there's a million stories, and I know, um, you know, all of them are good. I, I again, I, I know I've said it, but I, I just can't thank you enough for working with Lauren for you, you know, doing thank such you. a masterful job writing the book as you always do, um, and you guys just putting the time into it because it's it is really really important and it's very valuable for our society to see, you know, the perspective of what you guys went through when when we were there. I mean, I've had a ton of guests on that are, are guys like me that, you know, grew up here that, that went there and fought there and have, you know, tons of, of incredible, remarkable stories. Some of them heartbreaking, some of them, you know, funny, some of them, um, you know, depressing. I mean, you, you name it, but to be able to, to get your side of, of what happened and, and that perspective from, you know, an Iraqi born, uh, military member, especially a pilot that was, that was integrated into, into Saddam is, is really, really special. Um, anything that you want to want to add to it? 
I don't think so. I think we did a pretty good job. I mean, yeah. the rest of the stories are, are covered here. And I, I would say the only final thing, it also was interesting perspective to see what immigrants in our country are also facing the journey that they're going through to learn the language, what his family did, I think is a prime example of what can happen when you take opportunity and you, you know, you kick down the door, like there was an open door, but I mean, they really kicked down the damn door yeah. on, on success there. And, you know, as a mother, I'm looking at my own kids, I'm thinking, oh, they're struggling, they're having trouble, but oh gosh, like the fortitude, the yeah. strength of mind that some of these families have to completely start over to learn a new language and, and for their children to do the same is, is really incredible. So I think yeah. that's part of the book that is also a wonderful message yeah. for anyone that comes from a, a different place here is, is with the opportunity our country really does provide. Um, but families like his who, who take the opportunity and, and just, yeah. I mean, do incredible things with it. That's, that's the difference right there. Yeah. And uh, so it's very inspiring. I, to me, the end of that story is, is it one that, you know, also pulls the curtain back on, on a different side of what families like his have been through and a wonderful example of what can be. Yeah. And I hope that it adds and offers some, some rounding of perspective for people yeah. here. You know, yeah. uh, I, I hope that it does. The last question I want to ask is that what, what emotions did you feel when you saw him get captured and pulled out of that hole looking the way that he did and then ultimately being, uh, being hanged for, for um, I, I guess you'd call his, his crimes? I mean, what, what was your... Yeah, actually, I feel shame about him mm -hmm. because, like, when you put the country in this situation and look at his kids, yeah. they, and Kusai, they fight until they die. He, he catch him, they catch him like, like a god. Yeah. Like they pull him from the, like, uh, from a hole from the, the hole, from the ground, uh, from the ground. At least he, if he, uh, if he is like a good, if he, if he is like a good leader or a president, you should have uh, fought. You should like kill himself. Yeah. Or at least fight. Oh, fight yeah. or don't put the country in this situation. Yeah. They just, they, they pull you from the hole like, yeah. like a god. Yeah. Were I you, um, what was what was your emotion when you when you saw him put to death? Were you relieved, happy, sad? To hell. To hell. Yeah. <laughs> so you, so you weren't that emotion. To, to hell. hell emotion. Yeah, yeah. to hell. To hell emotion. Because so you were glad that he kill many peoples. Yeah. Yeah. So you were good. To, you were glad to see him die. But it should be like don't like yeah like kill him like this way. Yeah, but like leave him until like just little by little until die. Yeah. Well, again, uh, fascinating story uh, for the listeners. Uh, this book, Flying the Tyrant, uh, please go buy it. Um, there's a ton of, of stories that we didn't get into. Um, you know, it, it supports both of these amazing people sitting here. Um, and I can promise you that you won't be disappointed or let down in reading it. It's, it's incredible. Um, I can't thank you guys enough for coming and sharing, uh, especially being being able to be the first interview. Uh, is just a, is a huge honor for me. So, uh, thank you. And uh, is there anything else that you guys want to add or, or let people know uh, they can get this on yeah, Amazon? You can get it on Amazon. Uh, Instagram, there's Flying the Tyrant on Instagram. That's just going to give some updates about books and interviews that Mr. Suleiman may be doing. Uh, that's his primary Instagram. And mine, Larnin Geldi. I'll have more books coming out, one coming out here in the next little bit that could be also interesting. Not the same topics, but similar, a little more focused on Afghanistan and okay. what women are doing there. So, yeah, stay in touch. 
We'll, uh, we'll have all the links for yeah. uh, your guys' uh, contact as well as where to get the book uh, in, in the description and all that. But uh, thank you again for coming. Yeah, I really you. appreciate thank it. You. Yeah. Thank you. Great thank stuff. you, Travis. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, phenomenal book, phenomenal people, uh, and thank you for, for supporting the show. Again, without your guys' support, show after show, we wouldn't be able to bring you amazing guests like this. So, again, go get the book. If you don't, choke yourself. <laughs> and until next time, this is Mike Drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.